VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. It's Monday, October the 3rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Fonts King is sitting in the producer's chair on this fine, frosty old Monday. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. And yes, good morning, Fonts. Haven't seen Fonts until just now. So yeah, pretty frosty morning. Had to break out the scraper, a.k.a. windshield washer fluid, to try to clear up the windshield before we came in the the roofs, the shingles, bit of frost on them, so here we go. And I just heard Brian Medor mention in the VOCM newscast that the Blue Jays did indeed sweep the Boston Red Sox and they've clinched a wild card spot. No idea who they're going to play yet in the wild card, whether or not they'll be hosting the wild card games at home. But one thing that strikes me funny is so here they are, they clinch a wild card spot. And so right into the clubhouse with the ski goggles on and the champagne bubble baths galore. You know, it's like they won the World Series. You know, you contrast that, say, with the NHL, for instance. You win, whether it be the Prince of Wales Trophy or the Clarence Campbell Bowl, you know, indicative of winning the conference. Some of the players won't even touch the trophy, let alone break out the bubbly. But in baseball, clinch wildcard and off go the celebrations as if the World Series is yours. All right, there's a baseball note today in history, October the 3rd of 1951. Any idea what that one is? That was the shot heard around the world. So the New York Giants... And the Brooklyn Dodgers, they finished the regular season deadlocked at 96-58 and 58 records. So they had a three-game playoff to see who would win the pennant. And in the ninth inning, Bobby Thompson hits a three-run shot to win the decisive third game and take the pennant for the New York Giants. Of course, he was now fielder and third baseman. Bobby Thompson, the shot heard around the world. They were down 4-1 heading into the ninth. There was a couple of runners on by the time Thompson got up. It was 4-2 at that point, and he hits the, the game-winning run. The shot heard around the world. All right, quick update from the International Para Hockey Cup over in Ostrava, the Czech Republic. Man, the States have our number. Of course, Liam Hickey plays for Canada. The States have beaten us just I don't know how many times in a row, and we don't really score in the, against them either. In the Olympics, we lost two games 5-0. Then we lost 8-2 to them earlier in this tournament. Then they beat us in the gold medal game 4 nothing. So two goals in four games, and the States have our number. But that's a silver medal for Liam Hickey. And Team Canada. Also watched a bit of the Women's FIBA World Cup of Basketball. Talked about it a little bit last week. The Canadians had a shot at a podium, at a medal. Came up a bit short. Lost to the hometown Australian team in Sydney, Australia. Uh, got pounded, really. But fourth place, they had a good tournament. Okay. What's this scribble? Oh, yes. So remember, it's last January where, unexpectedly, Chris Abbo Abbott died. Right? And he was best known as being Buddy the Puffin. Well, I guess husband and father. But, of course, he was Buddy the Puffin. So the Growlers are auditioning for new mascot performers to take on what is a well-known figure in this province. And it's not just about antics at the game. Buddy really becomes a part of the community. Goes to all sorts of events. So if you're so inclined, they are indeed auditioning now for new mascot performers to take on. Buddy the Puffin, where Chris and others have left off. So, anyway, if you're interested in that, that sounds like a bit of fun. Okay. So, we know that we all talk about affordability issues. You know, it's front of mind for just about everybody. And, of course, where you stand depends on where you sit, what's most important to you. 
But we know because of the cost of living issues and inflation and taxes and the conversation in the House of Commons about raising uh, EI contributions and CPP contributions and, yes, the carbon tax, affordability is a big one. But to that end, it's really tone deaf for the federal government. I know there's contracts in place with the members of the executive and the public sector, but it really does come across as the inability to read the room. When last year they paid out over $190 million in total bonuses for 2021-2022. Look, I get it. The contracts are there. But some of these things simply do not make sense. So these bonuses represent an 11% jump. That's $171 million more than the year prior, of course, the beginning of the pandemic. Then you factor in some of the bonuses that went to the non-executive members. But here's where it gets interesting. So whether it be the targets hit, your own self-imposed targets that you're going to have to hit, Inside this year, where there was an uptick in the numbers of people and the amount paid out in bonuses, the uh, departments and agencies only met 45.7% of their combined 2,722 departmental performance results. And yet, here we go. Even some of these bonuses flow into entities, for instance, that are dealing with uh, the passport backlogs and the like. So how can that be? Immigration visas for students, for instance, huge backlog there. Access to information. Major logjam there, but yet even those departments were getting bonuses paid out to their members. So outside of executives, there was another 8,317 non-executive public servants, about 3% of the total ranks, also received a major bonus last year. 500 more people got bonuses in that year than the year prior. So while many people are struggling... Not so bad if you're on that front. Now, the executives, they don't qualify for overtime. And yes, we all know that their targets, when they're hit, whether it be about safety or diversity hiring or hitting some of your own self-imposed targets or benchmarks, but $190 million in bonuses. Boy, oh boy. And people will factor this in. I think this is fair. When so many people, especially early on in the pandemic, were really negatively impacted, whether it be with their own businesses or their hours of operation, and people were able to avail of the Canada Emergency Response Benefit or the wage subsidy or other additional supports that were out there, but nowhere near the ability to stay on the payroll full-time and then to collect a big bonus, I don't know, you want to talk about it? We can do it. One day last week, can't remember what day, nor do I remember the gentleman's name at this moment, but he called about the fact that he had been sexually assaulted and that he had filed a complaint with the RNC. And in his estimation, they didn't take him seriously. And there's been no follow-up. And he was told he would get a call. And it hadn't happened. And he'd called back twice himself after the initial complaint was filed. So that's a major issue. You know, it's one thing when we talk about the numbers of women who have been sexually assaulted and the guesstimates is that it's only one in ten come forward. And add this gentleman's name to the pile for people who think that they have not been taken as serious as they need to be, to be heard, to be listened, to be understood. Now there's another report coming from the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission. That's the civilian oversight body uh, regarding RCMP and their operations. They say... There are huge problems with the number of adverse findings for bungled investigations. That's some 43 adverse findings. So the RCMP has pledged to do better on this front. They're updating their training and their manuals and all the rest of it. But for the civilian oversight body to identify 43 of these such cases, then add in how many times they say how many RCMP officers are not taking people seriously when they come in to file a complaint of sexual assault. That one kind of boggles my mind because... If we know that it's so difficult for people to want to come forward in the first place, so when they've taken that leap of faith, whether th when they've made that decision that they will proceed, 
and look for an investigation to be launched and to be willing to be in a courtroom when we know it can be extremely difficult and traumatic for victims of sexual assault to not be taken seriously is unfortunately simply going to mean that more and more people will choose not to come forward, right? So this particular report is really not great. There's one uh, specific case itemized in the news piece itself where, I mean, I'll let you read the news story itself, but it gives you a clear indication of just what the RSMP did not do when we've got all these recommendations sitting on their desk regarding sexual assault investigations that's coming back from work done in 2019, and yet that's where we are on that front. So for that gentleman, if you're listening this morning you want to give us an update, just even via email if you'd please, to talk about whether or not now that you went public, now that you've made three contacts with the RNC, where that investigation stands. All right. Do you still use the fax machine? I can't remember the last, day, last time I sent a fax. But privacy commissioners from around the country met, and they were talking about the security of digital health care records. And they've got one campaign launched called Axe the Facts. It is truly remarkable the privacy oversight or lack thereof inside the healthcare system. I mean, even something as fundamental as a healthcare setting at a clinic or an emergency room or what have you, when if anybody wants to, they can really hear a lot of your personal information simply because of questions being asked by the triage nurse or the receptionist. And some of these questions are important and they contain important pieces of information. Yet, we still do that. And then it's the number of misdirected faxes, facsimiles, which of course can just sit on a machine Anybody walking by can take a look. And then also going on to talk about the number of misdirected emails. Now, we've all done it. We've all sent a misdirected email. But when we're talking about some of the most personal, private information that you can possibly think of on top of your banking information, is how can this be happening, apparently, as frequently as it does? Okay, Linda Swain from the newsroom just passed me this very quickly. I'll change my thought for one moment. Cowan Hyde Elementary closing immediately due to a power outage. Students are being dismissed. Parents, you should contact the school or the teacher. So that's the folks at Cowan Hyde Elementary. There's a power outage. So if you need to collect your, your child, you need to contact the school. Okay, thanks for that, Linda. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah, the Privacy Commissioner. We know that sometimes in the past we've seen just the looky-loos, right, the nosy ones who just go searching through medical records for no real actual health care need. They're just curious. Not good enough. But this kind of stuff, and I know people are burnt and I know they're overwhelmed, but that's our private info, and we've got to do much, much better. And yes, please, let's get rid of the fax machine. You know, of all the industries or walks of life that are left using whatever form of communication, the fax machine, seriously? I mean, just how easy is it for it to go to the wrong number and or for it to sit unattended on a machine so that anybody from the custodian through the neurologist can walk by and simply pick it up and have a look, see if it was the facts that they were waiting for, for instance. So, Privacy Commission, it'd be nice to talk to Michael Harvey today. Uh, Fonce, let's put that in uh, a bug in Mr. Harvey's ear, see if he's interested and has time to join us on the program. Yes, let's access the facts. And I don't know what could be better done even with those questions being asked by the triage nurse or the receptionist, maybe a little quieter area that's a little bit more private and secluded and away from the general waiting room so that people who are nosy and eavesdropping can so easily pick up on your important information. All right. So there was an AGM last week for Eastern Health. And, of course, we all know the problems plaguing the system and staffing shortages and ER diversions. Now, I heard Minister Tom Osborne last week talk about 
some of the positive moves with the reduced number of days of divergence from emergency rooms, but the problems are real. This is where I'm really not sure what to make of it. And so the uh, interim president uh, over at Eastern Health, his name, or interim CEO, pardon me, uh, Kenneth Baird, talking about some of the issues based on staffing and, you know, the tough times that they're trying to overcome with recruiting healthcare professionals in particularly rural areas. But we know that at the Health Science Center here in the capital city that they were operating double its capacity since June. So he goes on to say that some of this is unexpected or unanticipated move by healthcare professionals to want to achieve a better work-life balance. It kind of feels like blaming the employees. You know, he says it's unexpected, unanticipated, but at the exact same time, we've seen what's been developing in the healthcare system for a long time. And the burnout is obviously real. We've seen the stories about big signing bonuses and retention bonuses being offered to casual nurses to bring them onto the full-time permanent list, and they're saying, no, thanks. But most of them are saying, no, thank you. So if we can see all of that from here, how come we can't see any of that inside the ranks of the executives at Eastern Health? Of course people are burnt out. And so if that's the reality, how can we say it's unanticipated? We know what the issues have been inside the system, even if we just look back at the beginning of the pandemic and the shortages that were already in play. And the comments you hear from Yvette Coffey about what the overtime and the burnout means for her members what the NLMA has been saying about the burnout of their members, what we've all seen with the problems plaguing emergency rooms and all the clinics that have been closed and the communities are now without a doctor for the first time in decades or centuries. So it's sort of a strange inability to see what so many of us see and hear about all the time. So what work-life balance you know, sometimes we talk about simply the bonuses or the amount of money that we pay these healthcare professionals. But the relationship with management, the fact that people are burnt to a crisp, that's probably very near the top of the list. If it's not the number one issue that they're worried about alongside money, it's 1A. So I don't know, of course, the individuals, whether or not the money is the be-all and end-all, but it's not unexpected or unanticipated. It's been happening for a long time. One other quick uh, health care note. So the four regional health authorities, of course, looking back at thousands and thousands of mammography test results, They've identified 30 patients where they found discrepancies. Now, they boil it down to say that it's a very stable, low percentage of the tests that have been re-examined, but that's so very real for those 30 families, 30 individuals and their families, that, you know, if it was based on we weren't hitting standards with the, amount, the number of megapixels and the screens where we're reading mammography tests, so some 30, and if you're one of them and you want to bring it forward, we can talk about it. Okay, so the House of Assembly reopens this week, resumes the fall sitting. Curiously, so today, Lieutenant Governor Judy Foote will prorogue the session. They will reconvene uh, Wednesday afternoon. But the speech from the throne will be at the Colonial Building, of course, home for the province's first legislature. So I guess with all the renovations, this is an opportunity to put them back in that historic setting. It's by invitation only. Limited access to the public gallery. It's a first-come, first-served basis. So they're going to be operating out of the Colonial Building. A lot of stuff on the agenda. A lot of people's business to be attended to. Let's help them set the agenda. So what are your concerns? What are your priorities that you need to see attended to? Whether it be the Elections Act and or cost of living issues or health care, whatever, or education. And someone wants me to talk about the uh, 
The K-12 issue last week with the so-called furries and litter boxes, I just find it to be almost too patently stupid to talk about, but if you want to bring it forward and talk about that, we can do it. But one thing that happened last week, and you know this regarding the prospects for green hydrogen, and I don't know what the future holds in that world, or the proposal by World Energy GH2, or the proposal at the Port of Argentia, but uh, Minister Steve Crocker was in Germany, and on behalf of the province signed a declaration of intent with the Germans for the provision of green hydrogen from the province to Germany. There's a little sense of carpet for the horse here, isn't there? You know, so if we have signed the letter of intent or a declaration of intent or a memorandum of understanding, it doesn't come with any legal binding moves that the province must make. But certainly, there is obviously a massive move towards one or more of these proposals getting green lit. However, that's go- however long that's going to take remains to be seen. But if you're on the Port of Port Peninsula and have an opinion one way or the other about that particular project, we can do it. And speaking of the Germans and Germany, it's it's hard for me to always know what you folks are interested in or what's going to provoke uh, your conversations and a telephone call possibly. But what's already been an extremely dangerous and horrific invasion of Ukraine is even scarier today than it was this time last week. So whether it be with the ridiculous annexations announced by Putin, whether it be with the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline, there's a lot to consider here. Then there's the saber-rattling regarding nuclear war. And I only bring it forward because of the German link here. But just think about it. Now, who sabotaged what? I don't know. But what else is under the sea? But all of those subsea cables that keep the world connected. Imagine if a rogue actor willing to sabotage a pipeline, what they'd be able to do to disrupt international communications. So it is becoming a bigger story, and the application by Ukraine to become a member of NATO regarding all 30 members to vote in favor of. But that just amplifies what is already an extremely dangerous situation into even possibly more so. So if you, that's something of interest to you, we can take it on. All right, how are we doing on the phone there, Fonts? And we see you out there, folks, in the southwest part of the island, and the devastation has not been cleaned up. We're still baby steps towards bringing life back to some sense of normalcy. And people have been very generous here in the province with their donations. No longer need any clothes or the like, necessarily. Here's just some of the items that they still do need. This is an updated list. Household cleaners, can openers, garbage bags, brooms, dustpans, buckets, laundry hampers, laundry baskets, scissors, denture cleaners, batteries, canned milk, kitty litter, weighted blankets, vegetables, uh, bread, butter, and hot dog buns, some children's medication like Tylenol, what have you. They could always use some bottled water too, but we're going to keep the focus on the southwest part of the province and realizing that just because a week has passed doesn't mean they're anywhere near getting back to normal, getting cleaned up, and beginning the rebuild. So if you want to tackle it, we can do it. And it's Seniors Week. It's Seniors Week. Maybe see if we can get the advocate on the program today, if Miss Walsh has time, and if not, in the near future. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hiya. It's a beautiful day out there. It is. 
Unbelievable. i got a question. I'm going to start off with a question. I'm going to try to be as brief as I can. Uh, I'll just preamble it. I'm very frustrated. I'm not angry or mad, but we, I'll say we, and I'll tell you who we are in a second. We're extremely frustrated up at Holdwood this morning. With what? At the marina. And I was just going to ask you one question, for example. If you were off today and you had the means to go out to the food fishery, if you had the means of your buddy could take you out and you were off today, would you go out? No, because it's closed. Okay. You just ruined my preamble. <laughs> yeah, because people were really we used really to, long. including a Monday, opportunity to go fishing, but the uh, fall session of the recreational food fishery ended yesterday the 2nd. Okay. We're up for now. We didn't realize it. We're not very stunned, but we didn't realize it that every other weekend during the summer always included sundown on Mondays. It did. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, yeah. Right. So I'm going to try not to be too curt with my voice here, but we are extremely frustrated up here. We are talking about the recreational boaters, cod fishery, cod fishers up here, right? Extremely frustrated this morning that you know that some boats are already gone out with two-way radios. we got no way to let them know that, that they're already out there. If they get five fish, right, per person... They could actually lose their boat and motor and the whole nine yards. They're already out there off Bell Island now, out there off Holyrood. I'm not surprised. What are we going to do? Now, we're, sorry, Patty, I'm a bit upset. We're frustrated with the fact that fisheries and oceans, I'll keep my tone down here, fisheries and oceans are not consistent. They can't even give us Monday today to follow along with a routine. How do they expect us to keep up with it? They can't even give us Monday today. We're not worried about that, but where's the consistency so we won't make a mistake on our own behalf. What is wrong with our politicians? The House is opening, I believe, on Wednesday, you said, right? Yep. Where are our politicians? Where's the FFAW? Is there anyone helping us out? Like, enough is enough. Like, what are we doing? And you, you even said earlier this summer that fisheries and oceans are always late and announce it. This has come home here, right? So they're always late. How can you tell someone to come home if we don't even know if they're coming home to a, to a food fishery, the cod fishery, recreational, right? So, another thing, where is the support of FFAW? I know they're supporting their union members and all the rest of it, but some of them union members are recreational fishers, right? They're going to take their friends yeah. and buddies come home here. I, I suppose so, but I don't think you'll find the FFAW being a big supporter of the food fishery uh, anyway, uh, no, to begin with. No, because we're not with. paying members. Because yeah. we're not paying I understand. Okay, so what about the house opening? How come, what is it going to take to stir the pot? Well, that's a federal issue, so we won't see know, much attention given to it in the House of Assembly, but... The members could pick up the provincially and get it through the federal members? Yeah, I, I suppose. Go ahead, go ahead, it's a bit of an after-the-fact now, considering it closed yesterday. I had a funny feeling, and this has happened in years past, where when people were used to the running, and over the summer, I think it opened on the 2nd of July, ran until the 5th of September, reopened on the correct, 24th, yeah. the run to the 2nd. So people got used to Saturday, Sunday, Monday. So I'm not surprised at all to hear that there's people out there today. Will there be some latitude offered by DFO? Because some people may just make an honest mistake, and, you know, because they fished on Mondays, maybe that's part of their days off during the summer, and they've gone out there again today. So I'm not so sure. There is a question being asked by someone, I think this is a justifiable question, is there's been some days lost simply because of weather, and it's a, such yeah, a tight yeah, timeline. Yeah, Fiona, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's a fair ball. Hopefully, whoever's out there, and hopefully it's an honest uh, oversight, and maybe, just maybe, they can come on in out of it and not face too much okay. in the way of repercussions. Uh, Last word to you, John, before I go. Yeah, I just wanted to say that we, we know that the, the, they always say that ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? It's no so, defense. What? It is not a defense, that's right. Right. So is that going to work today? I don't because, know. Because, like you just said, if, if someone is out to fish and earn, 
fisheries and oceans going to be a little bit lenient? And here's the thing, direct defaults, why didn't they just be consistent and keep Monday? Like, I don't understand, like, how much are we going to take? We're up for now with the frying pans ready, the fat pork cut up, for when we come in, we're going to have a little last lunch for the end of the season, right? And we're up here ripping, frustrated. What is wrong with fisheries and oceans? We don't get it. So we're hoping that you're with us, Petty, so you'll keep the, so you'll keep the fish to the fire. Well, we've paid it okay. with us. All right. I've, I've already tried to see if there was going to be any accommodation made for days that were lost. And you're invited up here for lunch, but we don't know where we're going to get the fish now. Yeah. You're invited up for 12 o'clock for lunch in the yacht club. Come on. I'm even supposed to go out on the boat. Her Majesty, named after the Queen. Her Majesty, I'm upset. We're, we're frustrated, Patty. Totally get it. I appreciate the call. Are actually... you going to be with us or what? We'll see you at 12? No, I haven't got time today, well, we but I appreciate frozen. the kind of invitation. We got some frozen. <laughs> Do you no doubt? Okay, we're looking forward to you. If you shows, your shows. If not, we'll have a toast to you. Thanks, John. Appreciate this. Listen, and we still love you. <laughs> appreciate that too. Thank you. Okay, thank you, sir. Okay, you're welcome. Bye bye. Yeah, we actually sent off a note to see whether or not there was going to be any grace given because of the days that were lost, where it was simply unsafe to be on the water. No answer as of yet. Let's go to line number two. Holly, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. I'm calling this morning now just. I'm a frustrated caller. I'm just calling to see if any of your listeners or yourself, somebody could point me in the right direction. I'm calling about a vehicle that I, I purchased in 2017. I bought a, me and my husband bought a new truck. And we had trouble with it last year. Um, come to find out the engine is gone in it. Um, and we still don't have our truck. We're making payments on this vehicle every month. I'm sick of calling everybody. Nobody seems to have any information. Just keeps getting put off and put off. And I'm just wondering, is there somebody out there that got any more information than I do or know what my right is here in this situation or someone else that I can call? Well, I know we can file a complaint formally. Okay. All the complaints regarding those types of things actually are found at the uh, at Service NL, the provincial department. Okay. Yeah. Because we had this vehicle, it was um, Angel went in her. We, uh, she's still under warranty, right? So roadside assistance come and took her. They wouldn't let us go back to our regular dealership. They had to take it to the clo- closest dealership that was yeah. here. And, I mean, I'm calling over there. I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're screening my calls and don't want to talk to me because I'm calling so much. Nobody seems to have any information. They give me a lender, um, but it's a car. I purchased a truck. There's, it's caused so much grief in the past nine months. I mean, I can't do anything. We can't go anywhere. I mean, there's a reason why we purchased a truck. And, yeah, so, again, I'm just I'm just frustrated. and I'm just looking for some help. Yeah, I, you, the only place to lodge a formal complaint with the province is that service NL. And you know what? To be honest, you're probably lucky you got a loaner, period. Because I got a buddy of mine, the, the, his vehicle's in the shop almost three weeks now with no loaner. He's out of yeah, his now mind. Yeah, I didn't get my loaner now. I, was, I think I was four months in there before I got my loaner. Okay. Right? And I've been told the same thing. Consider yourself lucky that you have something. But I'm just wondering if I'm making these payments on a monthly basis for a truck, I'm given a lender, and it's not even compatible with what I had, and like, in these big payments, trucks are not cheap to have, and I'm, I'm just, I'm just all in. I just don't know what to do. That's all. So you're saying service NL? That's the only place to lodge a complaint with the government on matters like this. Yep. Okay. Give that a shot. I don't know if that'll get you one step closer to uh, a resolution, but 
that's the next best thing, you know, until, you know, fighting with the dealer is probably going to end up no further ahead. But no. if you file a formal complaint, maybe, just maybe, something will come of it. And that's the only next step I can think of, to be honest, Holly. Yeah, no, and I've been on the phone with GMC up in, I'm not even sure if it's Ontario or Montreal. I mean, I'm calling them on a, almost a day-to-day basis, and it just keeps telling me that they have no information. And that's the customer service, I guess, for GMC, right? Okay. Yeah, so. Good luck with it. All right, thank you. Have a good day. You too, bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break, try to hit our targets this morning. When we come back, tons of time for you. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Let's go. Line number three, Stephen, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hiya. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to make this as brief as possible. I'm, you've already received two calls about this from my sisters about a lost dog uh, last week. And uh, I, uh, I lost the dog, and I lost the dog at the parking lot of Dead Man's Trail, which is on Blackhead Road. It's the trail that goes down to Freshwater Bay. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I am, yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, we're trying to locate a man who came into the parking lot and spoke to me. And he said this. He said, are you looking for a black dog? Yeah, I am. And I was waiting in the parking lot waiting for uh, her to reappear out of the woods. And he said, well, she's out, I just, she's out on the road. And there's a woman with her, with her car stopped. And she appears to be trying to pick, pick her up. Now, I, I let the conversation finish with the man. And then we went out and had a look, and there was no one on the road. So the road was gone. The dog has since been missing. So we're trying to locate this man. We're trying to, and so, if you know, if he doesn't listen to your show, then unfortunately I don't think we'll locate him. But uh, uh, we, uh, you know, between 3.30 and 10 to 4 last Monday afternoon, I had that conversation in the parking lot of the Dead Man's Trail, uh, and I'm, I'm hoping to locate him. Well, hopefully he, hopefully he or someone else uh, belonged to him is listening to the program this morning. And I know the dog we're talking about this, a 22-pound black terrier named Misty. A little bit of gray on the snout as the dog ages. I think it's maybe around 10 or 12 years old. From Toronto, the tags are Toronto, so you won't have any success when you try to go down that route. So if you have... If you're the gentleman who's in the parking lot at the uh, head of the trail and or know anything about that dog location of, someone probably has it and just doesn't know how to reunite Misty with the family. Uh, good luck with it, Stephen. Okay, thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the executive director at the NL Foster Families Association. That's Kelly Dog. Good morning, Kelly. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the program. If I'm not mistaken, this is Foster Families Month, is it? It is indeed. Okay. And it's a very exciting month for us here. Um, We always have lots of activities Um, on the go. We ultimately want to recognize the work that our foster families do throughout the province. We currently have approximately 600 foster families in Newfoundland and Labrador, and they are um, tireless workers who are, you know, making a tremendous difference in the lives of the children and youth who are in their homes. Um, and their work is challenging, um, and we want to make sure that they're recognized and they know how much they're appreciated for everything they do. You know, unfortunately, far too often, what you hear are stories of 
really troubled youth and consequently troublesome times in the home. But I think that gets exaggerated as opposed to some of the good news stories where a child does find a foster family and has a loving, uh, safe, healthy environment and it works out famously. So I don't know how we change the tune on that because you know as well as I do. Some people think, well, it's a real tall task because I'll be bringing someone into the home who's broken. When in fact, we've got great news stories that comes out of foster families all the time. Absolutely. We hear so many good news stories of children getting placed in foster homes. And of course, these are very stressful, traumatic events in the life of this child or youth. Um, But these kids go into these homes and the parents are doing it for the right reasons. And they're nurturing these kids and loving them. And, you know, it's showing them acceptance in spite of, you know, whatever behaviors they may have. And we do hear so many positive stories where um, a child wants to stay in contact with their foster parent even after they return home or even after an adoption has taken place. And some of these relationships go on to last for the rest of this child's life uh, because they have such a positive experience while they're there. How many, I'll say wait lists, which seems very uh, institutional when we're talking about human beings, but how many children in the province are looking for a foster family? Um, Well, I guess if we're talking about numbers of kids who are currently in care, that number is approximately right now around 900 um, with 600 foster homes. The challenge that um, the Department of CSSD runs into is that um, if a child comes into care and all current foster homes are full, they have to look at all their options for where this child can go. And sometimes that ends up being a, a staffed arrangement, um, which ultimately protects the child or youth physically, but it's not ideal. Uh, kids need to be in um, homes where they have consistent caregivers uh, with a home environment. Um, so we don't want to see children in these types of staffed arrangements. We want to see them in foster homes, um, you know, with one or two parents. Um, that's ultimately where they're going to do their best and where they're going to thrive. Um, so while there's always a place for, for a roof to go over a child's head, um, there are never enough foster homes to take in the kids who need them. What kind of supports are there for potential foster families? Um, well, our association, we are here um, to offer whatever type of support a foster parent needs, whether that just be um, debriefing, um, providing insight around the policies of the department and how to navigate the system, um, you know, how to work with uh, their social worker, um, helping them to find services that the child may need. Um, so we're here to, we're really an information hub. So if a foster parent, their new foster parent, um, we can hook them up with a peer support a peer mentor where they can be connected to a more experienced foster parent who can provide them, kind of show them the ropes, provide them some more support, answer their questions that they may have. Um, they're never alone in this. If, if a foster parent gets involved and, you know, not really sure how to get their questions answered, they can call us at the association and we'll be, we're here to help. What kind of, uh, what, pardon me, what kind of stuff is going on for this Awareness Month? Well, just this past Saturday, we had our kickoff event here in St. John's. We had um, 60 people come out, so that's foster parents and the kids that are in the care come out, and we had a great time with a big bouncy castle and a reptile show and face painting and snacks. Um, Everyone had a blast. This morning, we had our proclamation signing here at the office with Minister John Abbott uh, to proclaim Foster Families Month in October, and throughout the month, we have a full schedule of uh, virtual training sessions that uh, foster parents throughout the province can uh, avail of, and we're going to be traveling to Central to meet with foster parents. We're going up to the North coast of Labrador this month, um, and it's basically to offer whatever support we can and to spread the word that more foster homes are needed. I appreciate the time and the good work the association and the foster families are doing, Kelly. Thank you. 
No problem. Thank you so much, Paddy, for take, having me. Take good care. You too. Bye-bye. Scully Dodd, the Executive Director at the NL Foster Families Association. Let's keep rolling here. Go to line number two. Morning, Tom. You're on the air. Paddy, how are you this morning? Great today, Tom. You? What? Oh, great. Oh, great. What I'm calling on this morning uh, is related to what I heard Tom Osmond saying the other day, that he made some improvements to the healthcare system. Well, now, two, two year, three years ago, uh, apart from the, you know, we said the virus caused a problem, you could walk into any hospital in St. John's and Labrador or all over the Arden and get a blood test done. So you just take your seat and you wait for your call, and it might take 20 minutes up to an hour. That was no problem. I had a requisition from my doctor the other day to get blood work done, and I phoned the number that they gave me, 777-6933, and the answer answered, gave me an appointment for 18 days. I mean, 18 days. I mean, something not right somewhere. I'm in a similar boat. I saw a family doctor for the first time in a long time, just a couple of weeks ago. I had to make a uh, an appointment for blood work, and mine was a I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 19 or 20 days after I had signed into the online portal. So, yeah, I hear you. I mean, it don't make sense. I mean, you know, we, we said three years ago you could do it in an hour. And, and I know the pandemic had a lot to do with it. You're sitting around the hospital with a mask on. That's understandable. But, I mean, the wait 18 days for a five-minute procedure, I mean, I find that <laughs> there's something out right somewhere. Yeah, and I don't know why it would be as long as that. I suppose it's as fundamental as how many spots are open in the run of a day and how many people have been given a requisition by a clinician to get some blood work done. So I don't know if we have reduced staff in these blood work clinics or what have you, but I was a little I, bit surprised I have to wait as long as I do. But I, I'm, I'm, I'd like to see somebody come on and explain it. Like if Osmond is saying that, you know, he's making improvements, well, maybe in other, other departments, but I think this is be a priority in my view. Yeah, in fairness, the update from the minister, uh, Minister Tom Osborne, was simply about the numbers of days where ERs had been either closed or they had been diverted to other places and or virtual care offerings as opposed to in-person. Some of the moves were, I think he put it down to maybe some of the summer vacations have now come to an end and more staff are being able to staff up these spots in the various clinics. But the numbers were, I guess, encouraging to know that fewer and fewer days have been under these uh, diverges. So it's certainly not the end of the road. Uh, improvement is good, but we're nowhere near having the system work the way it's intended to work. Oh, for sure, for sure. Anyway, I just thought maybe I was going to get on and explain that particular item that I was talking about. Happy to put it to him, Tom. All right, thanks very much. All the very best. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. We did mention off the top of the show that there was a recent gathering from all over the country, representative uh, privacy commissioners, talking about protecting our digital health care records and some of the concerns that have been around for a while, but we've got to do better. The Privacy and Information Commissioner for this province is Michael Harvey. He's in the queue right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Join us on line number three is the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner. That's Michael Harvey. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Happy to have you on the show. So I know you had a very recent meeting with your, your counterparts from the provinces and territories talking about healthcare digitization and protection of the records. I mean, we thought it was a great recommendation, say, coming from the Cameron Inquiry to have this digital presence for our records as opposed to row a row of files. But it comes with some 
potential breaches and risks? Sure. And I mean, this was really uh, uh, accelerated. The transformation digital was really accelerated by the uh, pandemic. Uh, now, uh, Patty, of course, I can't talk about uh, privacy in healthcare without mentioning the cyber attack that occurred uh, uh, almost a year ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, my office continues to investigate that, and uh, we hope to have a report with recommendations out uh, by the end of the year. It's a complex and technical uh, investigation. I can't talk a whole lot more about it, but it is, uh, and, and certainly my colleagues across the country agree, that uh, the threat of cyber attacks uh, to health systems uh, is, uh, you know, a, a really significant threat, continues to be a significant threat uh, here and in other jurisdictions around the country and indeed around the world. Um, you know, health information systems were, were targeted, particularly in the pandemic, by cyber criminals because they were uh, known to be under stress and vulnerable. Uh, and uh, and so everybody is paying very close attention to what we're doing here. Uh, I can't talk a whole lot more about it, but it's it's very very clear that uh, our health information systems need to be modernized and held up to a, a really high industry standard. Uh, so just as a little preview, you know, that's definitely going to be a theme. Uh, and it was a theme of the joint statement that my colleagues and I uh, came out with, um, because we all, even though we didn't talk a whole lot in detail about this particular investigation, we all agreed that health needs, health information needs to be a priority. As we move towards a more digital age, the uh, you know there are more opportunities for increased privacy and security, uh, but there are also more risks. You know, words matter, don't they? And this is not me saying anything about the Information Privacy Commissioners, how they've talked about this matter. But, you know, when we hear innocuous terms that become part of every day, a hack or a breach, in this case, we're actually talking about what experts in the field say is a national security matter. I think when you put it under that uh, lens, then maybe, just maybe, others will take it a bit more seriously, whether it be the provinces and or the federal government. Because I know they'll say it's a provincial responsibility, they simple, simply transfer the money. But when an expert in, in cyber attacks has deemed to be a national security issue, that sounds much different. I think so. And it's, it certainly is very, very uh, clearly a priority uh, for uh, my colleagues across the country. But even at the federal level, the federal privacy commissioner uh, doesn't really have a mandate uh, in the health sector because, as you said, this is a provincial responsibility. Uh, but the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, which, of course, has uh, many more resources than, than we do here in Newfoundland and Labrador, including uh, their own uh, cybersecurity you know, lab, uh, they have uh, offered and uh, uh, their, their advice to us. And so it's very clear that... Um, on, on the commissioner's side, uh, they see this as a as a national priority. And you know, again, as a little preview, uh, I th- and I mean, uh, you know, I said this at the outset a year ago when we had the attack that this was clearly a, an issue of national security, and and likely solutions will require a national approach. So uh, we'll, you know, we'll see. Again, I don't want to uh, get in front of my my investigation, but um, uh, I think it's pretty obvious, even even on the surface, that this is a, 
national level problem that requires national level solutions. Um, but of course, when I say national, that I don't necessarily mean this needs to be the federal government's responsibility. National means all of us working together, provinces, territories, and the federal government. Yeah, knowledge sharing. You know, the broad strokes of it is legislatures don't work very quickly at the very best of times. But when we talk about the breakneck pace at which technology is advancing, and yet legislation is not keeping up with it, that's where I think a federal approach is absolutely required, or a federalism approach is absolutely required here, yeah. because we've seen the risks. We know all about it, whether it be hotel companies or credit card companies or healthcare systems. They're out there. They're lurking around every corner, and they can so very easily and quickly get your info. So we've got to do better. Okay. That's true. But that said, you know, uh, those kind of hacks are only one source of concern. Uh, and again, the major concern here is identity theft. But breaches in the health sector happen all the time, and they're not uh, they're not all like this one, which is about identity theft. Sometimes they happen inadvertently, and people end up getting sensitive medical information that they uh, that they shouldn't have. And it's not like uh, they're going to necessarily do something nefarious with it. But nevertheless, people are concerned that the, that people are going to whether you know inadvertently or or. Uh, or on purpose, get access to their sensitive personal information, and this will cause some distress and embarrassment. And so we also need to be vigilant about these kind of breaches. Yeah, because it might not be the hacker. It might be the end user of the information that eventually gets you and puts you in a in a compromised position. Okay, let's get to the issues that you, you and your colleagues were talking about. Right off the bat, the campaign to axe the facts, and that would be doing away with using facsimiles to share information inside of healthcare. Is there ever an argument put forward as to why that antiquated technology is still being used? Well, I think many people in the province might be amazed. I certainly was amazed, you know, when I got into this uh, this sector. As you as you know, we've talked before, Patty. I was in the health sector before I moved into into uh, this this job, uh, and I was uh, I was amazed when I found out exactly how many different health systems there are. Uh, how many different health information systems there are, and they really don't talk to each other very well. And, and so, for that reason, to make sure that um, you know, when let's say your family doctor uh, is communicating with Eastern Health Lab, or uh, they're communicating with the pharmacy, uh, or you know, all of the different databases in the health system, you know, one, you know, their their different information systems don't often uh, communicate, so they have to use faxes. And the problem with faxes is that it's very easy for them to go astray or for, you know, a fax to slip off the end of a fax machine or the wrong number to get dialed. Um, we have a different reporting regime in Newfoundland and Labrador than they do in Ontario. In Ontario, my colleague, uh, she gets uh, notified of every single health breach, no matter how insignificant. And... Uh, uh, she tells us, uh, our table, that half of all of the breaches that are reported to her are misdirected faxes. And those faxes could have all sorts of information on them. Uh, and, um, and it's just a, a vast number of unnecessary breaches that can cause people distress. I also know from my previous life, you know, this isn't specifically within in my mandate, but I know certainly from my health life that... Um, the misdirected faxes are a source, a significant source of medical errors, and I can say, as a patient, uh, just like you know, everyone is a is a patient. I've had you know prescriptions go missing, and I've had to follow up, and it's just a major source of breaches, but also inefficiencies and errors in our system. So we think the time is right 
for um, for health uh, operator, you know, health custodians around the country, healthcare organizations, practitioners, uh, to finally, you know, kind of move into the 21st century when it comes to modern, interoperable, secure. Uh, information systems. We know that they're moving in this way, but um, you know the foot needs to be on the gas in this regard. Yeah, I mean, uh, the facts can sit on the machine unattended, and anyone from the housekeeping staff through the chief of staff could just inadvertently pick it up and have a look, and might not be the facts that they're waiting for, but it's just amazing we still use the fax machine in this world. Now, when it comes to misdirected emails, we've all done it. You type in the first couple of letters, and you're anticipating the, a certain address to pop up first, and you hit it, but maybe you selected the wrong one. So now we're talking about uh, attention to detail and human mistakes. So even when we try to do better to protect, this is not necessarily even a technological one. This is a human error one. So what do we actually do here? Well, you know, most of when we call for modern interoperable healthcare systems, uh, we're, we enable communication to avoid using email for these kind of purposes. So you wouldn't want to email a prescription to a pharmacy if you had an automated modern system whereby the uh, you know right within their database your family doctor could push a prescription directly into the pharmacy system. They wouldn't have to worry about typing in uh, the wrong names or getting those autocorrect orders. You know, like I said, my colleague she in Ontario tells me about the faxes. The majority of our breaches are misdirected emails uh, that we get, that get reported to us. And those emails can go, when you get a misdirected email, it can go to all, you know, numerous different parties at the same time. So this is a major concern for us. But mo these modern systems uh, would have, would avoid using email for these purposes. Uh, email should be used for what it's meant to be for, is, you know, sending a memo to someone, right, as opposed to sending uh uh, sending personal health information. So, you know, when it comes to healthcare, uh, it's, you know, there are many different calls for resources. One of you, I was listening to your previous caller talking about resources for, for blood testing. And, and of course, Minister Osborne these days is focused on uh, recruitment of family doctors and nurses. There are so many different competing uh, voices for resources within the health system. And, and our colleagues said, listen, as you move towards more virtual care, yes, you're going to improve care in the system. Uh, you're going to improve efficiency. You're creating a more data-rich environment. Make sure that you're putting that privacy lens on things when you do it, and then that way you are taking advantage of all of the good opportunities of moving towards a more data-rich virtual environment. I always appreciate the time, Michael. Oh, and uh, thanks, Patty, for helping us get our message out. Happy to do it. Take good care. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. It's Michael Harvey, the province's information and privacy commissioner. Uh, some news coming in from Nate regarding the public sector ratification vote. We'll talk about that after the news. But Sean's there to talk health care as soon as we come back. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Sean. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How is everything today? Not too bad. How about you? Good, thanks. Uh, as a frontline worker, um, as you know, um, when I used to write my charts up as a physician, I made sure I wrote, I wrote them in the fashion that 
is, was illegible. Okay, so only me and the patient knew about what was written on the chart. Nobody else would be able to uh, garner any information. Okay, about five, ten years later, the medical board dictated that we had to have charts that were typed, which cost me an extra twenty grand a year to to, to do that effectively and maintain my license. Uh, so. I was reading an article there about the privacy commissioner this morning, and I'm not going to reveal anything private, uh, but to believe that for two and a half years, nothing could get done um, because of a misdirected email uh, or fax um, seems incredible, considering that had not happened in the past. Um, And I don't think uh, that particular situation combined with covid would make it seem all the more significant as such. So I'm very skeptical of what the government is doing with respect to this. I believe it was a ransom attack. I believe it was paid, and the government hid it for such a long time. Remember, they wouldn't comment on it. They didn't want anybody to know. All they had to do was come out and say, okay, it was misdirected emails and whatever. But the longer it took, the longer it took, the more willing we are now to accept, accept that uh, exclamation, uh, explanation. Fair enough. You, you know, know, the illegible writing, that's always something I've been amazed where anybody can actually read some of the handwriting that you see put forward, whether it be on a prescription or whatever the case may be. Well, I wrote a prescription one time, the pharmacist took it and he couldn't read it, so I put it in the pharmacy journal. And the pharmacy journal... Uh, Gave a thousand dollar prize for any pharmacist who could make it out across Canada. Guess what? No, no nobody could make it out. <laughs> Interesting. You know, but I, I don't know. Like, are we been told everything by our government? I mean, probably not. <laughs> okay. Well, well, that's the thing. I mean, they're elected. They're put in there. To, they're supposed to tell us the truth on everything, right? And I noticed this week that this is a week for the uh, seniors. You know, and, and you know, seniors week. Patty did. It should be called. It should be yearly for seniors. I mean, after all the wisdom and knowledge and how they raised us up and how they imparted their knowledge and wisdom to us, you know. And you know, it, it's, you know. Anyway, I'm not going to go any further on that. But you know, it's just to me, it's a sin that they're they're not been recognized as, as such. You know, and they're the guys taking it on the chin. When it comes to uh, muskrat files and all that stuff, right? Whether you know buy food or buy their drugs, you know. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's, I just find it really odd, right? Yeah. Uh, fair Paul, fair Paul, and fair point. Uh, Sean, appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. Nice. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Uh, can Randy hold for a second, Harris? So we have enough time. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Robert Barrett. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today. Thank you, sir. How about you? I'm great, thanks. Patty, I spoke to you before about uh, my young man, Jackie. I don't know if you remember or not. Absolutely, I sure do. We actually gave Jackie and his other Hall of Fame inductees a shout-out last week. Oh, cool. I, I didn't I didn't realize. I must have missed the program. Um, and I've been a bit tardy about calling you because, I, I, I mean, I can't get over the excitement that I'm – the level that I'm at, put it that way. Um, Jackie now uh, – as you as you said, will be inducted uh, this month into the Newfoundland Labrador Sports Hall of Fame. So that's that's um, Nova Scotia, Canada Sports Hall of Fame, and now Newfoundland and Labrador Sports Hall of Fame. 
And I heard um, on the news this morning that uh, the list of inductees for tomorrow for the Newfoundland and Labrador uh, order is out. And as you know, Jackie got that last year. So this is pretty well, uh, well, I don't know what to say, really. Well, I think it's amazing. I mean, Jackie has had an extraordinary career, whether we're talking about bowling exploits and or as a power lifter, most notably. So he'll be inducted in the 2021 class in the athlete category. Couldn't be happier for him. No, no. And, uh, and me neither. You know, it's, it's, uh, he's come a long way, like we talked before, you know, from being um, his mother and I being told to put him in an institution when he was five to graduating from university and now all these sports honors. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Fascinating. Yeah, and I don't. I can't recall. I'm trying to rack my brain here whether or not uh, we actually took a call from Jackie one day. I can't remember because I've exchanged emails with him. I know that much, and I've offered him time on the program if he's so inclined to talk about his exploits and his his adventures. Because it's not just success as the power lifter. He's seen the world. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's he's been uh, uh, for a young man with autism. Well, I mean, he's. Uh, I don't know. 45 years ago, autism was a word that wasn't even known, and uh, and now he's 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 on the board of directors of something. I can't tell you. I can't remember all the stuff that he's involved with, and he's uh, um, he's active with the autism society or with the Special Olympic movement in Cornerbrook. Still, uh, he's he's not uh, competing anymore, but he's training other uh, Special Olympians now. You know. And, He's been uh, guest speakers in in Bermuda and and God knows where else. <laughs> it's unbelievable, really, his journey. I, I think it's great stuff. And uh, just for the folks who maybe missed that part of the show one day last week when we talked about the inductees, because everyone knows that listens, big fan of sports and the athletes and organizers. So, in the 2021 class, Jackie joins Dave Buckingham as an athlete builder, baseball and hockey. Zane Forbes in the athlete category, of course, hockey, baseball, rowing, softball. Blair Langmead in the athlete category, softball and hockey. Wolf Stender as a builder in track and field. And the 2022 class includes Brian Brocklehurst, of course, an athlete, standout, softball hockey baseball darren colber one of my buddies athlete baseball and hockey sean gulliver of course mainstay with the shamrocks he's going in as the athlete and a builder in baseball mike howlett in soccer and pat parfrey a builder in rugby congratulations to all absolutely uh it, you know any any individual that uh dedicates their life to sports and people you know it, it's, it's it's like jackie uh when he got involved with special olympics you know he was he was a loner, and he had all the the characteristics of an autistic person. But the Special Olympic movement uh, brought him out of his shell and into the real world, if if there's such a thing as a real world. <laughs> Make, makes sense to me. Pass along my personal congratulations to Jackie when you're talking to him. Will you, Robert? I certainly will. I certainly will. I'll uh, I'll encourage him to give you a call, Patty, because he's a uh, when you, if you do get a chance to talk to him, he's an amazing young man, uh, uh, very well spoken, uh, very, you know, pro Special Olympics, uh, a great ambassador for the province and and the country, and uh, that's about all I can say, I guess. Here, here. I look forward to speaking with him. Fingers crossed. Yeah, Patty. I, uh, just one more thing, Patty. Sure. Uh, a couple of years ago, you're familiar, of course, with the Lou Marsh Award. Yep. He was runner-up to some, some. Well, I'm not a Montreal Canadian fan, so 
but he was runner-up for that award to some guy named Price. So that's, <laughs> you know, that in, that in itself was a, I said, Jack, there's really no, no uh, shame in coming second to a guy named Price, I guess. Absolutely not to even be considered for the Lou Marsh, which of course is representative of the Athlete of the Year, both on the men's and the women's side. So that's a pretty cool story. I didn't know if I even realized or uh, recall that at all, Robert. Pretty cool. No, no. And the other thing now that that uh, that I didn't know, but he's the only uh, Newfoundlander and Labradorian in the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't know that. I, I that, that's amazing too. You know. That it is. Uh, great to have you on the show this morning, Robert. Thanks a lot. We can okay, hear the pride. You have a great day, and, and uh, I enjoy listening to your show. Thanks a lot, Robert. Take good care. Thank you, Patty. All right. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the double asteroid redirection test with the past president of the Royal Astronomical Society. That's our friend Randy Atwood. He's up next. Don't go away. The Workday winds down with Greg Smith in the drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to past president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. That's our space friend, Randy Atwood. Good morning, Randy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm very well. Very well, thanks. So we're going to talk about the double asteroid redirection test, which, of course, goes by the name of DART. But it's impressive enough when you can hit the bullseye of a dartboard from 7 feet 9.25 inches. How about hitting the bullseye from 7 million miles? Well, it, it's amazing that they were able to take this spacecraft and hit it uh, at the distance that this, as this asteroid is and the speed it was going. It, uh, it's, an, it's an amazing mission. Um, uh, you know, the, the whole idea is the fact that uh, the Earth has been hit by asteroids in the past. Uh, a rather large one hit us 66 million years ago, and that ended the reign of the dinosaurs. And there's every reason to believe that it could happen again. And uh, if it did, uh, it would probably be the end of the uh, human species. So, uh we're trying to, to do something to prevent that. So it sounds like the plot from a Hollywood thriller, doesn't it? You know, trying to hit an asteroid before it kills us. So Dimorphos, I believe, is the name of the asteroid they chose, which had, my understanding is, a very predictable, well-understood orbit. So they chose it. It was in the danger zone of about 160 meters wide, which is the kind of impact and the size of an asteroid that they'd be quite worried about. So describe exactly what they tried and what they did here. Well, first I'm going to say that uh, any asteroid redirection Hollywood movie that you've ever seen, just put that out of your mind, because uh, Hollywood doesn't really treat this all that, all that well. They, uh, their, their solution was to blow the asteroid up into a million pieces a few days before it hits the Earth, you know, send Bruce Willis or, or Donald Sutherland out there. And, uh, and the, the problem is it just results in a lot of smaller pieces hitting the Earth and still does, does damage. The idea here is that you want to redirect first you want to identify the asteroid that could potentially hit us and right now astronomers believe that they've identified all of the ones at least a kilometer or so in size or bigger that could potentially hit the earth for 100 years there isn't one uh but this this the size of this asteroid 160 meters you know a football in a field and a half more or less uh it would do some serious damage so what they d decide to do is smash a spacecraft into it. 
Uh, you wouldn't think that a, a 500-kilogram spacecraft hitting a 5-billion-kilogram uh, asteroid would, would affect it at all, but it does. It does, but of, just a small bit. And when they did this, they thought it would slow the asteroid down uh, just a little bit, about a, a centimeter per second. Uh, but if you do that months or years before you think this asteroid could potentially hit the Earth, once the months or years go by, this small change in velocity is going to change the orbit of the, the, the asteroid, and it, it's going to uh, miss the Earth. That, that's the whole plan, and what, why they chose this little asteroid, which is going around a larger asteroid, is that it has an orbit of 12 days. Normal asteroids have going around the sun have orbits of, of four or five years. But with this asteroid they chose, they've hit it. They hopefully have slowed it down a little bit. It has a 12-day orbit around the, its, its bigger asteroid. They think they may have changed its orbit by 10 minutes. They're waiting uh, over the next couple of weeks, once it goes around a couple of times, to be able to measure that and actually see what effect they had. How will they understand whether or not it's had the appreciable uh, effect on impact? Because it's one thing to say it's successful because they hit the bullseye, but is there such thing as a telescope on Earth or in space that can actually see this asteroid orbiting? Or what are they looking for to determine whether or not they've changed its path? They can see the asteroid pair as a single star-like object. But as uh, the, the uh, Dimorphos, the smaller asteroid moon, goes around Didymos, it passes in front of or behind the larger one, and they can see the decrease or increase in light level. And that is, that's the way that they uh, can measure the orbit's uh, time. Oh, so what they're referring to, uh, I thought I heard uh, Bob McDonald talk about it just out of the corner of my ear, the dip that they'll be able to be able to recognize with the, uh, the orbital path. Anyway, it's fascinating stuff. So because the spacecraft obviously has been lost, what, what do we know about how much of a heads-up we'll need so far as time? Because you simply can't build and set the trajectory and launch it because it took a long time for this particular spacecraft to make, what is it, I think, 11.27 million kilometers. How long of a lead time do you need to even be able to replicate this DART procedure? Well, you'd need years, and uh, I think the strategy here now is to prove that you can do it. But then, you know, we haven't identified all the 160-meter asteroids out there. There are telescopes looking every night trying to uh, observe and identify all of these uh, potential, what they call, Earth-crossing asteroids. You may remember the asteroid belt is in between Mars and Jupiter, but there are quite a few asteroids that come into the inner solar system and actually cross the path of, the, uh, of Earth's orbit. So the first thing is to identify all, any potential asteroid that could come close. Uh, and it's difficult to determine if it's going to actually hit us within a few years or if it, it probably if it, if it just comes in, you know, say within the Earth, within the moon's orbit, we're going to be concerned about it. So at that point, you say, OK, we're, here's an asteroid. It we think it may be close enough to uh, have a statistical chance of hitting the Earth. 
let's start working on a mission to set to send something out there and change the orbit the tricky part here is of course you want to make sure that you deflect it away from the earth and not put a an asteroid that was going to miss the earth on a collision orbit so it's it's a tricky business and it's 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 very uh it, it's a difficult thing that they're working towards and i'm really glad to see that they've uh they've taken the money and an effort to actually demonstrate that it's possible one thing that's interesting is telescopes on on Earth and in space did observe the impact and observed a lot of debris coming off of the, of the asteroid. And uh, it's possible that a lot of the debris coming off the asteroid uh, even deflected the asteroid more. It's sort of uh, Newton's third law. For every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. So what they're planning to do is send a European space probe to this this asteroid pair it'll arrive in in a couple of years and they're going to observe all the damage that this thing did and actually see uh you know what effect it, it had so it's it's a serious effort to understand the possibilities of actually deflecting an asteroid away from earth yeah and the larger one didimus uh, i read was discovered in 1969 somewhere down in the united states in the south of the u.s i believe and they had a so-called close call with it back in november 2003 where missed the Earth by some 4.5 million miles. So that's what we're talking about with close calls, and we're talking about the asteroid pass as it crosses Earth. Fascinating stuff. Uh, before we run out of time this morning, Randy, did you happen to catch Jupiter in opposition last week? It, yeah, it was very, very bright, and it's, it's going to be visible all, all autumn. So uh, 9 o'clock in the evening, go out and look towards the, uh, the southeast, and uh, you'll see a very, very brilliant star-like object. That's, uh, that's Jupiter. It's, uh, it's quite a sight. It's the largest planet in the solar system, and it is a, a quite a bright sight. Anyway, can you explain to the folks what in opposition means? Oh, every, the Earth travels around the sun in a year. Jupiter takes 12 years, so we always catch up to and pass Jupiter. And at one point every year, the sun, the Earth, and Jupiter are in a straight line. And when Jupiter is in opposition, it rises at sunset for us and, and is up all night. Uh, what was special this week is that Jupiter was at its close point to the sun. Our orbits aren't perfectly circular. They're a little elliptical. Uh, so Jupiter in its 12-year orbit uh, was at its closest point to the sun. So once we caught up to it, we were statistically uh, at, it, at, at, it, at the closest point than we have been for, for many years. Yeah, it is quite the sight. I have caught one glimpse of it. And just for clarification, NASA didn't take on this DART procedure as just a matter of curiosity or whatever. I think they were actually mandated by Congress to do exactly that. And so they're just doing their job on that front. It's always great to have you on, Randy. Appreciate the time as usual. Thank you, sir. All the very best. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Randy Atwood. He's the past president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. He's our go-to man when we look to the sky. Let's take a break. When we come back, there's a caller there to talk about sports. And then we're going to talk with you. Uh, Mike's there as well talking about access to information. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Good morning. Uh, I just want to talk about sports as a team effort. Okay. I think every sport that's played should be considered as a team effort. But uh, I was watching a football game there. I'm a college man myself. And... Uh, 
It was on late in the evening. And it was broadcast like millions and millions and millions of people watched that college football. I'm one of them. Yeah, who do you cheer for? I like Ohio State. I'm a Big Ten guy. Uh, I'm, uh, well, uh, Tennessee. Okay. But the, the game was on between Wake Forest and, and, and Florida State. And for a team to uh, be announcing, you know, get the announcers to uh, uh, the, 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 the Florida State kicker, Mr. Fiogo at 29 yards. And, you know, they were announcing that uh, all during the game that they were, they were not putting any trust in that young fella. And that was going all, that was going national wide. And, you know, see, and, and, you know, and they wouldn't even trust him to kick an extra point when you get a touchdown. Okay. They went, for the, they went for the two-point conversion, and they never won. Which, which, which I'm glad that they never. You know, they never put no trust in that in their kicker. Yeah. So the Demon Deacons against the Seminoles. Well, that's the nature of the business, though, isn't it? You know, the pressure that's on the foot of the kicker, the pressure that's on the arm of the quarterback. You know, it's a team sport. Obviously, you need all eleven playing in cohesion, mm-hmm. but. There's mm-hmm. some positions just come with different pressures and people are isolated and that's just how it goes. So you were just displeased that they kinda... Oh yes, yeah, really displeased, yeah. Like I say, if I I, I, I don't think I'll be if Florida State is playing again, they will be on T V, but that's uh, like I say, you've got a numerous uh, choices to to look at because there's four or five teams on every Saturday, right? But oh yeah, lots of college I ball. Huh? I don't think I'm and but but the, the loss any do their do their ignorance. And 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 the, and the killer about it, and was only twenty three seconds left in the game, and then to bring out that young fella to try to kick a fifty four yard field goal, which was impossible. Well, not impossible, but that, but that was that, that was not an insult. Do you think so? I I mean I don't really know. I just think, I guess I'm so used to watching uh, team sports that I know certain people just get isolated. Like you're watching baseball, the pressure's on the pitcher for the vast majority of the game. You're watching hockey, the goaltender's in that pressure packed position. Same thing with kickers and quarterbacks and all the rest of it. So I guess that's just how it works. Yeah, but it uh, certainly don't look good for that. And uh, one more note that uh, is on the news this morning that the uh, doctor is no longer with the Miami Dolphins. Eh? He allowed that uh, quarterback to go back on the field. I watched that as well last Sunday, and he's stumbling three times trying to get up off the ground. Yeah, well, he's had seizure. I mean, that's a scary sight for Tua to have taken that kind of knock. And I did see the story where they let that doctor go. All sorts of errors of judgment in the concussion yeah. protocols. Ridiculous. What made you a Tennessee fan? Is it like uh, Peyton Manning or something like that? Uh, not really. Like you say, I I I, I love. Uh, sometimes I go for uh, like you say the underdogs. Okay. And, and you know there's uh, 51 games played. Sadly, not play. Yeah, played in the states. 51 college football games played. And there were 14. I mean, 14 underdogs that was never supposed to win against the top the top ones, and everyone everyone uh, blew them out of the water. Yeah, and that's only Division One. That number of and, games, and that was a that was a great time to bet a two dollar bet on on, on sixteen. You you would have won seventeen grand. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad at all. Well, well, I just had to put my uh, opinion out there, Al, because I was thinking about it all last night. Like I say, well, that, that's it. It's a team sport, but that's the way it goes. That's the way the cookie crumbles in sports. There's always going to be someone who gets all the glory and someone who takes all the blame. And in this case, it's a kicker. 
appreciate the call this morning. Thanks for this. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, as much as we're a team, some guys, you know, you just feel like you're out on an island, and the kickers are definitely one such example. Yeah, I'm a Big Ten guy. I love the Buckeyes. Uh, let's go to line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Teddy. Good morning, Mike. Uh, I sent you some emails last week, and I think you you read them on things that I was doing. I was looking for information through the uh, A-tip, and all I'm getting is opposition from my fellow Newfoundlanders in this in these positions of the A-tip with Eastern Health and not providing the information on contracting company there that are, well, as far as I'm concerned, is ripping us off and ripping us off big time. And they're getting away with it through the executive and the government officials and that and everybody not doing nothing to stop them, but promoting them. This same company over in England, I asked here, guaranteed during the epidemic, they made a boodle of money there somewhere or other of us. So I asked questions onto it. And one thing that they did over in England during the epidemic, they went and got a contract from the Tory government over there to supply to supply food packages to the needy children who ordinarily would get them in schools for the lunch program. But here, there, now, where they were entitled to these lunches, they had them, this group, make up packages for them at home. Anyway, they made up packages for 10 days that weren't fit for nothing. They took advantage of the needy children and they ripped off the government in the amount of money they were paid. And they were caught at it. The same company is over here supplying food and that and stuff to us and whatever. And around the world, they've been caught and convicted of different things like this. And here now through ATIP, I want to get the money that they're paid. The uh, ATIP representatives, like I said, they're blocking me every which way that they can. And what they're saying is that they're not allowed to divulge the information because uh, they're afraid that their competition of this company would find out how much they're getting paid, which is baloney because every time I've been on a job for Eastern Health or whoever, or whoever it was in government, you are entitled to know what the other person bid, and they're entitled to know what you bid. After the fact, yeah. So here they're covering up for these people. Here now you've got five, 45 employees there in management positions right up to the top. They're doing everything here to destroy our healthcare system. And like over in England, they're accused over there of crony capitalism, which they're doing around the world. Over in Asia, they're, they were investigated for putting the food uh, in orphanages and old age homes, which leave a bit to be desired over there anyway. And here in Canada, I think in Ontario, they got fined or they settled out of court or something, $40 million. Like this thing here, and what amazes me is that the public procurement offices and that and stuff here are blocking me every which way that I can. I got ATIP people blocking me. I saw the Newfoundlanders here who should be on my side with protection that these people cannot come in here and practice this kind of government and this kind of ruling of, of companies that is only benefiting a few billionaires over in England. And what we got here, as far as I'm concerned, from everything that I can determine, this government is not only corrupt. 
and for be putting up with this stuff and uh, and all the things that's going on. And you combine that with our local stuff, like what's going on with the facilities over in Corner Brook, the new hospital, you put it all together. And uh, this liberal government boy leaves a lot to be desired as far as I'm concerned. And one time I had a lot of respect for Tom Osborne. I don't have any more respect for him whatsoever. And as far as I'm concerned, the only reason why we got the premier that we got there now is greed. He wants more. And he's getting more. And like you said, they're making all kinds of mistakes. Kara's sister was in hospital. She had to go in the hospital for five days. She needed an operation. She was in hospital once, and she said they couldn't do her for five days or something like that. So she decided to go home and come back in in five days, but she couldn't get in. So she went home. She couldn't get the operation then when she came in the hospital. So she had another attack or whatever. So she went in the hospital. This time she had to stay in for five days until if she went home, there'll be no guarantee she'd get there. So she had to stay in the hospital for five days to get the operation, taken up a bed, and then it was two or three days after the operation she was out. So she's in bed longer to get the operation than what it is to recover. And here we are, all of these management, the executives and everything else that are leading all of this stuff, that are not changing, that are there destroying it all, is getting away with it, and we're doing nothing. But you're, you're blaming operational issues inside a hospital on the government, on the department, on the minister? Yes, it all comes down to him. He, I spoke to him back back when he was the minister before Hagee, back 10 years ago on this about, uh, about this group and what they were doing, and he won't do anything. Won't do nothing. All he come back and said, oh, they're an inter- intricate part of our health care system, and Eastern Health needs them, the executive and the, and the boys all needs them. So he's letting them alone. Well, why don't he get rid of the people that can't do their jobs? He's got to hire these people. He's not being realistic. He's not being uh, sensible at all, as far as I'm concerned, in, in his uh, analysis of the situation. He's just doing, he's there, doing what he's told by these executive members. And that's it. He's got no say in nothing. And... You know, uh, it's you know I've gone through this with them, and uh, I had a meeting with them one time back oh ten years ago now I suppose they're probably close on it, and uh, like, he just refuses to do anything, and it's all there obvious in front of him, all there. But like I said, and this is who who all of these people are supporting. They're they're you know they're they're known around the world. They're multi billion dollar pound, 11 billion pounds they're making a year, and they're here skinning us, uh, bidding on their own work to their own companies. They're only doing buying and selling from their own companies, mostly, and uh, signing off on their own invoices, charging what he wants to charge, make what he wants to make, and then when somebody inquires to find out about how much they're ripping us off, our fellow Newfoundlanders blocks it. Our government, our minister, our premier, the chief procurement officer, all of these people put stumbling blocks in your way that you can't get the information you need to prove that they're just as bad here in Newfoundland as what they are in the rest of the world. Appreciate the update, Mike, and the emails. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Sarah Crocker from Food First NL, another great project they got on the go. It's called Food on the Move. Don't go away. 
Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the program coordinator at Food First NL. That's Sarah Crocker. Good morning, Sarah. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today about Food on the Move. Yeah, I know it's been in the work. So Food on the Move is going to be a pop-up shop, an opportunity for accessibility in particular. Tell us about it. Yeah, basically over the last couple of years, you know, we've been working on a St. John's food assessment and come up with you know, an action plan. Like, what do people want to see that would make a huge difference in their lives and in their neighborhoods around food and options for more affordable groceries? You know, that was the top of the list even before we heard all of this about inflation. So the idea is we'll basically be doing some coordinating on our end to work with wholesalers and bulk buy to bring affordable grocery basics to different uh, neighborhoods through our partnership with the Community Center Alliance. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you hit the affordability issue because it's one thing to be mobile and deal with accessibility, but affordability and price points, so you've got a bulk buy program in place. That's what I was going to be most curious about. So how is it going to work? Like, Have you identified the sites where the pop-up would be? Is this going to be local vendors and tables like a farmer's market, or just describe how you think this is going to look? Yeah, so um, we're working with the community centers uh, with, um, that are the Newfoundland and Labrador Housing Centers. So we have awesome partnerships with, um, we're going to be at McMorran Community Center, Buckmaster Community Center, Froud Avenue Community Center, and Rabbit Town Community Center this fall. It's bi-weekly, um, so two times a month on Thursdays and end of the month on Fridays. So uh, we encourage folks to check out our website, Food St. John's. Slash move. Um, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Food on the Move SJ. And that way you can find out when pop-ups are happening in your neighborhood. They're open to anyone. Um, we'll basically be the only vendor at this market. We're putting together um, a selection of produce, so fresh fruits and vegetables and some staple items um, that we will have as kind of a deal. So three items for $5. Um, and folks can pay with cash debit, and credit cards and gift cards. You mentioned some of the community centers, which are kind of self-explanatory as to where they are, like Froud Avenue or Buckmaster Circle. Mm-hmm. McMoran's up off of Bell's Turn in, That's the, right. in the east end of town. So when we talk about a, a pantry staple, give us an idea of what falls into that envelope, because we can all understand fresh, ve- fresh vegetables and fruits and what have you. What's it a pantry staple? Yeah, so folks wanted um, a few other things like eggs were really popular as a you know great source of protein and sort of affordable. Um, we'd love to be able to expand you know some dried goods um, as we figure out the right product mix that people are looking for. And we're also open to feedback if there's items that you wish we could have on the market, but maybe we didn't think of them right away. A big part of this is the transportation question. So you kind of mentioned affordability, but you know the cost without a vehicle or even with a vehicle to get to the grocery store is phenomenal, right? So folks might be paying $30 for a taxi both ways. So what we can do is, um, you know, bring those groceries into different neighborhoods. Yeah, I like some of these things like what the Big Feed Club and DRL, you know, because it used to be a nice weekend day trip to come in and shop at a box store or what have you. But that doesn't sound as fun when you see the price at the pump. So these all these little moves make a big difference. I'm interested to pick your brain. I don't mean to catch you off guard here necessarily, but 
We've got a food waste problem in the country as well. And we talk about access and price point and all that. But what are your thoughts on just how much food gets wasted? And we're talking about millions and millions and millions of pounds of food wasted every single year in this country. Some of it based on expiry dates or best before dates. Some of it because people are just not that uh, aware or they're simply oblivious to the food waste issue. What should we be doing on that front? How should we be talking about it? Because we're trying to get food to folks that are hungry, but others who are out there not really being pummeled with the affordability issue, we're wasting it. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Like, when we think about food waste, you know, when you think of all the work that goes into growing or transporting food, distributing it, like, what a loss, right, to waste food at the end. But it's interesting, like, food is actually lost all along that that way, and sometimes it seems, you know, preposterous, the amount of food we waste, but... It's not just individuals wanting to personally be wasteful. There's, you know, things that happen in terms of stock and transportation, um, just the way that, you know, pricing schemes work that all factor into that equation of food waste. Sure, there's stuff people can do at home, um, being really savvy, trying to be as thrifty and thoughtful with their food. But, you know, this, this project really coming at it from a different point of view that, you know, the food that other people waste isn't really the most dignified way of, of making ends meet. So with this project, we really want to think about um, having choice, having options, and, and bringing those into neighbors, neighborhoods that are underserved. Check out the Food First NL website for all the different uh, programs that they're working on, the ones that are up and running and ones that are coming. Good to have you on, Sarah. Always appreciate your time. All right. Take care. You too. We'll see you on Thursday. Sounds great. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. It's uh, Sarah Crocker, Program Coordinator at Food First NL. And just uh, a side note. I actually went to the farmer's market on Saturday. I used to go there fairly frequently. I haven't been there in quite a long time. It's a real pleasant experience. I mean, there's a good vibe there. The products, whether it be food or crafts that are on on display and for sale, is just remarkable. Anyway, I threw that in there. Let's go to line three. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you and to France and to VOCM and to everyone out there. Good Thanks morning. for taking my call. Pleasure. Really appreciate it. Uh, Patty, uh, I'm on the road today, but I left for Guadalajara last Thursday. The reason why I'm calling, I'm still very concerned about what's happening on Guadalajara and or what's not happening really with our bank and with our doctors and with the the crazy ferry system we got going now, Patty. Uh, I was in the ferry lineup uh, the other day, some six hours waiting to get off for Guadalajara. Seventy vehicles in the lineup. I tried to get through them, but your line was really busy. But, uh, Patty, it's just not good enough. Uh, the people of Fogwaran, uh, our, our council and our MHA is just not doing justice. I don't believe, now it is up to one's opinion, uh, to the people of Fogwaran. I mean, you take out a 68-car ferry, you replace it with a 28-car ferry that's take care of two islands, and you got the traveling public, of course, you got all these trucks, you got the freight trucks, uh, four fish plants on the island, the list goes on, and people are in the lineup for hours and hours. And in my case, and I'll tell you another example, I got in Grandpa's Windsor 10.30 that night, rain on the highway, frightened right to death because of my moose accident that I've had and just about got killed. And actually, my cousin uh, got into a moose accident that night before they got the gander. Daddy, uh, I don't know. I don't know why we would be left in this mess, because... What would happen? I know it's Bill Allen probably don't want to hear this, but what should have happened, because I worked on this issue before when I was a citizen rep for the Transportation Committee or the chair of the Transportation Committee also. 
at the time, uh, uh, different times. But anyway, uh, what what should happen? Like right now, the veteran is down. She went already down nine days, and she could be down a lot longer. What should have happened, a replacement theory of the same size should have been put in place. Now, do you give you the Annette schedule and all this stuff? But listen, it's still a 28-car ferry taking care of two islands. So we're still in a mess. People are going to probably even lose their life because of it. If you're on the highway at night, like like, like this lady did at the Moose accident, for example, which is unnecessary if the right things were done. So why wouldn't our municipality and our MHA fight for us to say, listen, like I did before, go to the minister and say, this can't happen. We can't let a, a, a 28-car ferry try to take care of a 68-car ferry. It's just not going to be, do right for the people of these two islands. But again, it just happened, and it, it's unreal, Petty. It's just unreal. And, and so, so uh, you know... But Eugene, uh, where do we get you a comparable-size ferry? The Legion Air is supposed to be... If you can go back through the notes, and I can go back through my notes, when... Our ferry comes off. The Legionnaire, which is the same size, is supposed to come to replace it. So why didn't that happen? You know why it didn't happen? Because we got nobody fighting for us. That's the reason. If Eugene Nipple was there, he'd be damn well fighting for us, and this wouldn't have happened. But it's happening because we got nobody fighting for us. And it's crazy. And, and it could cost people's lives. I mean, how more important could this be? So, but are, are you just simply suggesting that, okay, if the vessel goes down and you need the comparable replacement, then the folks on Bell Island would be making the same argument that you're making? When the ferry is going down for any length of time, listen, uh, the Flanders will never leave Bell Island. It's a Bell Island ferry. I don't know if I go into detail on that, but it's a Bell Island ferry. It's I've never left Bell Island to come to Fogwang, Tianjiang. It's going to stay there. So what they did in the past, they took the Beaumont and put with the Flanders, and I dealt with the MHA there, and I dealt with the mayor at the time there, and that was okay. So why wouldn't it be okay now? The Legionnaire would come when it's in a length of time, not for a night, not for two or three days, but for a length of time. We don't know when the veteran is coming back. We, we really don't know. So we got to put up with that, and it shouldn't have ever happened in the beginning when you know it's going for any length of time, but it's because of the bureaucracy and the people that's running our show is 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 really letting the people down, and and I'm a concerned citizen. I live on Fogwell, and I don't really don't know if I can stay there. I, I'm telling you the truth. I don't know if I can stay there. But you know, I'm sure there's people back there clapping, saying Eugene is gone. Thank you. But I tell you, I have done a lot for Fogwell and 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 Chang-Yong's, and especially Fogwell because that's where I've been living. But I tell you, if you got nobody fighting for us, Patty, we'll go down the drain. Our bank is out there, the door closed. The sign is gone. North Scotia Bank, after 108 years, the bank is closed. We don't know when it's going to open again. We got no replacement doctor. I went to see the doctor before I left, actually, to get my driver's license renewed. But anyway, there's doctors that wants to come to Fogwell, but they're not. Why aren't they coming to Fogwell? They actually wants to come to Fogwell, and you had Minister Osborne on there, and you asked him the question. And the first time I think I ever heard Tom Osborne sputtering and stampering and not know what to tell you, because he didn't have an answer for you. I was listening. And yeah. You did a good question, and you you popped pop some good questions to Tom Osborne. And thank you, Patty. I appreciate it. Yeah, some of those questions I'd really like to be able to direct to the people who need to ask, answer them, and that would be the College of Physicians and Surgeons. In this case, where we're talking about that Massachusetts-based doctor uh, who was willing to, on his own dime, fly here, no compensation for the work for three months, and 
can't pass a licensing exam because he's simply been offering virtual care versus in-person care for the last number of months, which is, it just doesn't make any sense. And so we're trying to get some time with the college because on one hand, they're telling us to expect more and more virtual care, but they're not including virtual care as active duty to qualify for a license. This guy is 50 years in the business. This man was actually a member of the first graduating class at Munns Med School. It's all, that story is quite frustrating to say the very least. Eugene, I'm late for the news, but appreciate the time. Teddy, I wanted to, before I go, I want to thank VOCM for updating us this morning, the transportation update, and that's because of Eugene Nippert. I've worked with VOCM to get that on because when I was on council, I ran that by council, and they didn't think it was important. But it is important. The traveling public should know where the ferry is going. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, time for the news. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. The topic that is completely up to you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go line number one. Tom, you're on the air. Line number one, Tom? Yes, hello. Hello there. Thanks for taking my call. Um, What I'm phoning about it's a simple issue, made it difficult. Uh, I'm on blood dinner, and I, I, uh, I guess my blood checked every couple of weeks. Okay. So I had my blood test on the 22nd of September, and Friday they were supposed to phone me and give me a report. You can't get you on the telephone, but I drove to the clinic, clinic's closed. So Saturday comes, I had to fight with the wind to get out the front door. We had a windstorm on. To go down to the emergency, and you're not supposed to go to the emergency. And if you phone the hospital, you get St. John's. So I had no choice. I had to go to the emergency. Like the nurse told me, she had, you never had much choice. I, she, I had to come down there to get my report. And 10 days have gone by, and the clinic hasn't phoned me yet. So isn't the way it normally works with blood work, if there's no nothing to report, no change in your... No change in your diagnosis or nothing to worry about that you won't get a call? Isn't that how people treat blood work? When I when I get my blood work done for blood dinner on Thursday, Friday they're supposed to phone from the clinic and let me know what the reading was so that I can adjust my medication if I need to. Okay, so you adjust your medication yourself? I does it myself, Okay. Because yes. she asked me down to the emergency, I need to see a doctor. I said, no, all I need is my report, and I can adjust my medication because I'm used to doing it. But getting that medication from the clinic, I don't get it. And so this has been advice from your doctor that you can self-adjust your blood thinner medication based on blood review, blood work uh, results? This has long been the case? You don't have to tell me because I've been doing it for for so many years. You know, I mean, not not something new to me. I'm used to it. But they they do tell me sometimes what what to take. I mean, I know what to do. But the, but the point is, I'm not getting my report. That's the problem. Understood. And I should be getting, you know. So what I'm going to have to do in the future is go down to the hospital and stay there till the report comes in. Because by phone to the hospital, they refer me to St. John's Answers. Right, okay. So wh- where where does the report go? Back to your own family doctor or? I suppose it go from the hospital back to the clinic the same day. And I'm supposed to get it on Friday. But that's not happening. So like I said, it's a simple thing becoming complicated. Yeah, shouldn't be. that's unfortunate because we've got enough problems. We don't need our self-inflicted wounds. Yeah. 
Yeah, I that phone let you know, and I guess other people got the same problems. No doubt they do. I appreciate the time. Good luck, Tom. It's okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. And uh, very quickly, I did make mention of the fact that we've got some news coming from NAEP, the public sector ratification uh, vote results. 18 of the bargaining units have voted in favor of ratifying the contract extension with the provincial government. There are three bargaining teams that have voted against it. That's Air Services, Marine Services, and the Correctional Officers. Overall, here's what's inside the package. Uh, 8% increase over four years. A $2,000 recognition bonus, which is prorated. There's a, and they refer to things like substantial language improvements, including a variety of things, and you can just imagine in your own mind what they might be. Sick note language improvements. I'm curious to hear what that entails, because the whole concept of needing a sick note to get a sick day, when we talk about pressures on the system and people's inability to get a family doctor or having to use a walk-in clinic or an emergency room, I get why the employers would like to have some verification that people are indeed sick, but just putting them in the churn, putting them in the system to get the sick note has always been a problematic thing. There are some movements on maternity, adoption, and parental leave provisions from 52 weeks to 78 weeks. Let's see here. There's all kinds of job security provisions regarding the what is becoming more and more popular is the public-private partnerships, the P3s. It's also statuary, statutory pardon me, holiday replacement, some approval in health insurance, family violence leave, uh, meal per diem increase of 20%, kilometer rate reimbursement adjustment changes upwards, remote work, telework letter, recruitment and retention committee. So 18 of the 21 bargaining units have voted in favor of the contract extension. Now NAEP goes back to meet with their three outstanding uh, bargaining teams whether it be air services, marine services, and correctional officers, to see if there's or see what needs to be done for those units to vote in favor of ratification. So, you know, well, I'm sure we'll hear a bit about it. But the whole world of wage increases to job vacancies was just not a public sector problem because, as we mentioned last week, a lot of the job creation, well, not a lot, Almost all, 86.7% of the jobs created in the last 12 months in this country have been in the public sector. It's not like the private businesses and small businesses are expanding and growing their workforce and what have you necessarily. It's been in large part people being hired into the public sector. So the talk of a hot economy is true, but it's because the governments have hired more and more people. 86.7% of the new jobs created are working for the public sector. And then you move into the private sector. And it's whether or not the work atmosphere and opportunity and rate of pay is enough to get people to take what is a record number of job vacancies in the country. Record numbers. So how we figure that out is going to be a moving target that's going to be hard to latch onto and tie down. And then on that front again, you know, minimum wage just went up here in the province. Still at a pretty woefully low number. I think it went up 50 cents. So let's get the accurate numbers there. All right. It's gone up 50 cents, so now employees must make minimum of $13.70 per hour. Another increase is scheduled for April next year. That's an 80-cent top-up, bringing it to $14.50. And by this time next year, in 2023, minimum wage will increase to $15 an hour. Okay. 15 has been the plea by many organizations. You know, it's the fight for fairness. It's $15 an hour. That particular campaign officially kicked off like six or seven years ago. So by the time we get to $15 an hour in 2023, it's nowhere near the impact, the financial impact of what would have been 
at the campaign origin, let's just pick a number, say it was seven years ago, in 2015, 2015, $15 an hour, compare that to what the reality is on the ground in 2023, it's nowhere near the same conversation. At 1370, if you're working full-time, 40 hours a week as a single person, we know what the poverty line is in this country, and it kind of varies from province to province and different regions, different amount of money means different things, of course, earning X number a week is variously, uh, pardon me, obviously different if you're living in Toronto, Vancouver versus maybe a smaller community here somewhere in the country. But if you're working full time, 40 hours a week, making the minimum wage, you make approximately $10 above the poverty line. The arguments always go the same way. Now, there's a transition program that's been brought to bear for small businesses in this province dealing with the minimum wage hike. You know, employees 20 or less. And if you are eligible on all fronts, you can bring in some about $22,000 of support from the provincial government to deal with wage hikes and the, ha and the like. So the numbers are pretty clear, but the whole record job vacancies to whether or not wage offerings have kept up commensurately, they haven't. You know, whether it be tied to the consumer price index or otherwise, but the minimum wage story, that's one of the conversations that you might be interested in right after this break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Ah, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Wayne, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you doing today? Excellent. How are you doing? Same thing, Patty. Top shelf. Welcome back to the show. What's on your mind? Uh, a couple things. Patty, a couple of years ago, uh, then uh, Minister Byrne, I think he was Minister of Lands and Agriculture and other things, uh, they announced the uh, transfer of 500 hectares of public land to farmers for potato production. Do we know what the status of that production is at this point? I don't. I mean, inside that package, that was because of the offering of 64,000 hectares of land for agricultural purposes. And that's moved along at a snail's pace. It really has. Whether it be time to clear the land, prep for whatever project is being proposed by one person or one business or another. So the short answer is, Wayne, I have no idea what the status is of that. No, I don't either, Patty. But I, I recall at the time that the minister said that the 500 hectares had been cleared and limed, I guess, and ready for transfer over to interested parties. And I believe there were two at the time with maybe 250 hectares apiece. And uh, since then, and especially this year, I've been keeping an eye out for Newfoundland potatoes, but uh, quite frankly, they're pretty scarce. So I remember back to Mr. Burns' announcement, and I thought, well, you know, we've transferred a lot of public land to the agriculture sector. What's the real result then for the people of the province? And potatoes today is just a little over a dollar a pound at the regular supermarket, which is beyond belief. So what happened to our 500 hectare potato production? That's what we need to know. It'd always be nice to know and get an update when there's government action on any of these fronts. I know well, some people probably think I talk about food a bit too much, but I don't think we can talk about it enough, to be honest with you, because people are struggling. There's lots of good organizations out there doing interesting things like the Food Producers Forum and Food First NL. But when the government is directly involved, whether it be with money or subsidies or breaks, and in this case, land prep and turning it over to an operation, to be great to get updates uh, along the way. Every now and then you get a sparse one like the big canola field out by Deer Lake. 
But that question you're asking about the potatoes, I have no idea, but I'd like to. Yeah, uh, at the time, I think Minister Byrne was saying that, and we all know this, that there's a lack of locally grown uh, produce anyway, and in this case, potatoes, and it doesn't take a lot of skill set to grow potatoes, but at the time they made the announcement, there was no mention of the ancillary things that's necessary to have in order to put land into production and then to harvest the crop and market the crop at the end of the year. So we don't know anything about that part of the equation, but he did say that we're going to have 500 hectares in potato production. That was two years ago, and I've been looking for Newfoundland-grown potatoes in the supermarket, and they're pretty damn hard to find, frankly. It's amazing to me just how many uh, different varieties or species of potatoes there are. Well, there's all of that, but uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find very many of any species produced in Newfoundland in the regular, you know, department or uh, grocery stores, and that's a, that's a problem, as I see it. Yeah, listen, uh, no argument coming from me. I can send off an email to the department, not only on that particular parcel and project, but every piece of update they can give me. Because that announcement regarding 64,000 hectares of land is as old as I'm going to say five years at this moment. So inside of that, there's got to be something up and running. Something has to have happened. It can't be all still just notional. There's got to be some operations that are producing whatever it is, from potatoes to other root vegetables. I'll see what I can find out. I won't get into the cranberry issue, but that's another long-standing one. And maybe all of the public land is transferred to private interest for food production. We sh- we should have a full-scale report to the people of the province and just how well that's performing for us. What's so your cran- What's the cranberry concern? Well, there's no cranberry production after all the work that was done on producing cranberries a number of years back. There isn't one farm that's doing it? Pardon? Isn't there a farm, a, a cranberry uh, operation that is in action here in the province? Okay, well, fine one. One that I'm most familiar with is not, and the claim at the time, and I think it might be legitimate, that they couldn't get uh, enough money for the cranberries to make it all worthwhile. So whether or not that's changed, I don't really know. But, you know, all of this public land that's been transfer to private interest for food production. We should know how much has been done over the years and what the level of food production is. Otherwise, what's the point of transferring another 64,000 hectares if we don't have a report, a satisfactory report, on exactly how the land is being used? Yeah, fair enough. I'll see what kind of information I can get. No problem. Okay, one other quick non-related thing more or less so much going on in Ukraine, Patty. Do you know whether or not the regular Russians are permitted to travel to Canada? By that I mean the non-oligarchs. Well, I can't see why not. Well, I mean, there's an application process for all kinds of things. There's four different streams for uh, newcomers to apply, whether it be for asylum or refugee and or the path to permanent citizenship. So I've never heard anyone say that regular Russians, quote-unquote, are not allowed to travel to Canada. Not that I know of. I haven't either, but I mean, it's it's rather curious, given the situation that's going on between Russia and Ukraine, and uh, all the Russian people, I presume, if if what you're 
expecting is true that a normal Russian can hop on a plane and travel to and from Canada without question. And I, it seems to me that, you know, it certainly has potential for some problems down the road. I mean, why should they be allowed to travel freely around the world, given the situation in that's happening with the Ukrainian people? As far as I'm concerned, they should be doors locked and kept at home, and they should sort out how they treat the rest of the world properly before they're allowed to enjoy the, the fruits of everybody else's production in, in the rest of the world. But uh, just for my own curiosity and for clarification, why would punishing a regular Russian citizen who has nothing to do with any of these actions or atrocities, why should we keep them out simply because they're natives of Russia? So you're, what you're saying, I guess the comparison is if it's not likely to happen, if Canada declared war on somebody, then we should be free to travel to these countries and anywhere else. Is that what you're saying? Well, I don't think anything's as cut and dry as that, but let's just paint the picture here. Okay, so a mother of two, uh, whether or not her husband has been conscripted to fight in the war, and she says, I'm getting the hell out of here, and as opposed to making the next stop Poland or Moldova or what have you, she applies for uh, a refugee status or asylum in this country. We should just simply say no because they're Russians. No, you're, you're, you're cutting off a section. You're speaking only to people seeking asylum. I'm talking about vacationers and regular friends. Oh, I didn't factor in the tourist. Okay. I'm not so sure how much of that's ongoing. But I know that there are people fleeing Russia now that the conscription process is back in full swing. They want nothing to do with it. And I've even seen some pictures of the... I mean, for starters, some of them being sent without a uniform. It's kind of hard to fight when you can't identify who someone is. And see pictures of some of these old revolvers that they're being issued as firearms, all rusty, decades-old pistols. It's just something else to behold. It, uh, I'm, it's getting a bit scarier over there than it once was, say, three months ago. It was all bad enough. Now there's the saber rattling is getting even louder and more dangerous. Yes, well, it's related to that level of saber rattling that I have some concerns. And if the Russian people are upset, they ought to stay at home and deal with the source of the real problem in the first place instead of traveling around the world freely and escaping it all because we have a, a serious problem emerging in the leadership in, in Russia and uh, it's going to have to be contend with before it's too late as far as I'm concerned. Fair enough. Appreciate the time, Wayne. All right, Patty. Always good to hear you and uh, talk to you. Take care. My pleasure. Take care of yourself too. Bye bye. Bye. Yeah, you know, and I, I did make mention of the fact that there's going to be lots of debates ongoing at this moment in time, and probably a lot more to come about just what happened to that uh, gas pipeline. You know, there was no gas flowing through it anyway. It was simply the leak based on the uh, the gas that remained in the pipe after they stopped the flow of. And now I'm referring to Nord Stream, of course. You know, you're going to, there are some people speaking in quite declarative terms that it was the Brits and the Americans or it was the Russians. I don't know who sabotaged the pipeline. But I added to that conversation, if there's rogue actors out there willing to be disruptive and all that required for that type of mission, the purposeful sabotaging of a pipeline, just imagine if they go after the subsea cables that are part of uh, internet con connectivity and otherwise. I mean, just imagine the disruptions that there was widespread sabotage of all those cables, of which they are endless on the seafloor. Uh, it's time for the 1130 News. When we come back, there's still a couple of segments left to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away.
The Workday winds down with Greg Smith in the drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the CEO at TechNL. That's Florian Viom. Good morning, Florian. You're on the air. Good morning, and uh, good morning, buddy. Good morning, everyone. Good to have you on the program. We know it's Innovation Week. There's Every week is really Innovation Week, and innovation and tech touches every single business we talk about, not just tech startups or what have you. So what do you got planned for the week? We have an uh, awesome uh, panel. Um, a, lo a lot of uh, the discussion with members uh, I, uh, led to a discussion on, you know, like uh, we need to learn from uh, other success uh, successful entrepreneurs, we need, we need talents, we need uh, more capital to grow our business. So all our agenda is, uh, is around that. Tomorrow we have a great conversation uh, with uh, Jamie King, the CEO of the Verafin, on his uh, journey and the journey of Verafin in, 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 from an initial um, initiative to, uh, to a large company. We also have um, a, a panel on uh, accessing to capital with uh, Sid Packet from RBCX, John Philip from Clister, uh, and uh, another um, panelist uh, from uh, Sandpiper, for example, Ryan Davis. So that's uh, another panel. And we actually sold out tomorrow. Um, it's uh, it's one of the uh, largest uh, uh, innovation week ever. Uh, we had a lot of demand uh, for the panel uh, and for the the, um, the innovation week. And then uh, on day two, on Wednesday, we have a discussion with uh, the CEO uh, of the Conference Board of Canada on the demand for talent. Uh, we have another session with uh, Juliet uh, Turpin from Randstad on, on how to uh, create a more diverse uh, organization and attract diverse talent. And because we need more talent, we also have a, a networking session for post-secondary uh, students about great opportunities in the tech sector. There are uh, a lot of opportunities for youth uh, to work in the tech sector. And finally, on day three, we, um, we celebrate um, all the great uh, accomplishments of the tech leaders in the in the sector, uh, we uh, we have a, an award ceremony, and uh, that will be a great way to uh, to highlight all the great things uh, happening. There's also a session um, on uh, uh, with our partner Genesis uh, on on the morning on Thursday to uh, celebrate uh, gender diversity and uh, and push uh, uh, the topic forward. I still don't think I've fully wrapped my mind around the Verifin deal, to be honest with you. So, you know, they're acquired by NASDAQ for $2.75 billion American dollars in 2020. It is the most amazing success story in the private sector here in this province. But you mentioned post-secondary. What's also very interesting regarding Verifin is that 600 of their 800 employees, and this is a stat from last year, it's probably changed, but 600 of yeah. their 800 employees are, are graduates of Memorial University. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's amazing. Like it's, uh, I mean, like uh, the university and other post-secondary institutions at college are at the backbone of of tech companies and are very important for the growth of companies. And yeah, I know Jamie and uh, was uh, also a graduate of Memorial, so they, I know that they are very keen to uh, to, to to give opportunities to uh, to youth here, and, and that's what they have been doing for for years. So very exciting to see them giving back and continuing to giving them back. Describe the relationship between post-secondary institutions and your group, because, of course, we talk about the talent shortage, and it's one thing for companies to recruit far and wide, but when you're a smaller startup, for instance, you're really up against it with the biggest players who are, they have much more in the way of resources to recruit talent, whether it be from this province or elsewhere. So the trick for me, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
is expanding the number of seats in our post-secondary institutions so that the talent pool can be right here where we're up close and personal with them as opposed to trying to scour the ranks of the uh, companies in Kitchener-Waterloo, for instance. Yeah, yeah, no, it, and um, we have a we have a close relationship with um, you know like uh, Memorial University, the College of the North Atlantic, King College, and Academy Canada, and, and they're all keen to um, to grow uh, the number of seats there. And, and they actually uh, more recently, uh, Memorial launched um, uh, like a three new master, and I know that uh, CNA also had a lot of programming, and there's more there is more to come on the King College. So, so I think it's a it's it, it's a challenge that. Uh, those institutions are well aware of, and we're working collaboratively with them, with them to uh, to grow the opportunities for for youth. Because as you mentioned, there are a lot of opportunities. The talent shortage issue. Is it improving? Because that was one of the things that I would hear from folks, whether they be in the incubator at Memorial University at the Genesis Center or their Center for Entrepreneurship, is that it was holding them back. They had the big idea, they had the opportunity to get the capital, but they didn't have the human resources to actually monetize, get it to market, be post-revenue. Uh, so where are we? Is it getting better? It's getting better because more um, more opportunity, more uh, training opportunities are existing. But also the the sector, technology sector, is b- becoming more attractive. And when you think at uh, an event like uh, Innovation Week, it's also a way to raise awareness of what's possible, um, to uh, what opportunities are existing as a career in the in the technology sector. So it's improving. Um, I also said that um, we have a very entrepreneurial culture in the province, and more and more businesses are being created and. So um, the the challenge will continue to uh, uh, to be a challenge as it is in other sector, but we are, we have been um, also have a, a great um, a training opportunity, and we need to continue to grow that uh, th- those opportunities for for training for youth because we will have more companies and more demand. I always try to remind myself to make this point: is that. You know, a career in tech or innovation doesn't mean you have to work at one of these tech-specific startup companies or the large players like the Call Labs and the Verifins. Just about every business, there's an opportunity for someone with a tech or innovative background to be on that workforce. It doesn't have to be in a tech-solely company. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. And technology is like, uh, you could say like uh, there are these technology in all businesses now. So like every uh, company is a kind of a tech-enabled uh, business. So of course there are opportunities in other companies, and I also say in the other way around is that there are also non-tech roles in um, in tech companies as well. You know, you, we need uh, um, sales people, we need marketing, we need like uh, um, communication, and so so all those roles are also very important and in demand. And um, for me, like um, when we look at the opportunity also for um, remote working, there are more and more uh, positions that are remote, so it means more we're going to progress on developing, um, you know, like the uh, internet connection across the province, more we will be able to offer new opportunities for, for youth to, uh, to work. And also um, uh, people at different stages of their career to work uh, out of uh, different places in, in the province as well. I appreciate the time. Good luck with all the uh, events and panel discussions during Innovation Week. Thanks, Florian. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Florian Viome is the CEO at TechNL. And talk about remote working. <clears throat> We know what has happened since the beginning of the pandemic, but just how many people are working from home, working remotely. The trend has been very, very real in many walks of life. They've returned to the office, but it's not going to be the way for a lot of different industries, a lot of different people out there who remain to work from home. I think 
prior to the pandemic, it was something in the neighborhood of 12 to 14% of the global workforce was working remotely. That number very quickly spiked to around 35%. It's only fallen back to like 27%. So obviously, for that 10 to 12% of folks who were once in the office and are now at home, that's going to continue. And you wonder, like, for any business that has the opportunity for their employees to stay home, to work remotely, still remain effective and productive, what's the downside? Uh, let's go ahead and take a final break of the morning. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the uh, PC member for Topsail Paradise. He's the PC Shadow Health Minister. That's Paul Jen. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Beautiful day. Beautiful day. Can't wait to get out in it. Oh, my God. I just uh, uh, just felt I needed to call in because uh, after hearing some comments from the uh, CEO of Eastern Health uh, at their latest AGM, and, of course, you and I have been on your show a few times now talking about the uh, – Healthcare and the different groups and their uh, their thought that they don't get the respect they're deserving, and I I kind of find the comments uh, uh, made by the CEO tended to support that that uh, they're they are disrespected in some instances, and uh, when he talked about the shortage of uh, of staff and and the shortage of beds and, and although he didn't come out and say it, uh, directly it 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 gave the impression that he was blaming the uh, the shortage of beds on the fact that uh, you know our frontline staff especially nurses in this case choose to have a work life balance which they're to- totally entitled to do but the more troubling piece uh in what he said and again this is their ceo of eastern health is when he goes on to talk about you know, shifting uh, work-life balance, and you know, in, in responding to, I, I think one person got up in the uh, in the session and, and talked about, you know, it's totally out of control healthcare in the province, and for uh, for the CEO to respond uh, uh, to to those and similar questions that this work-life balance is is a new dynamic, or I think he went on and said something to the effect that it was completely a new phenomenon. I mean, that, that raises red flags right away because we know and you know from people calling in that uh, this is not something brand new. The nurses unions and other key stakeholders in healthcare they've been advocating for this for a long time, for better working conditions, more supports, hiring more staff, and that work-life balance. And it's troubling, especially when we're looking at the health accord and this transitioning into one health authority, and we have have a have one there, Eastern Health Authority, telling us that you know this is something new, something they didn't see coming. And you know, I look at this, I say, you know, I've had meetings with the the minister, and so there there's there's some lack of communication or some connection breakdown here between the powers that be that should be uh, communicating and overseeing the health care in this province and ensuring that there's a plan in place to start addressing these issues. I mean, I know from me just going out and talking to these groups, these these issues are not new. They're not a new phenomenon, and they're certainly not a new dynamic. That's what caught me off guard with reading Mr. Baird's comments. 
His, I'm not involved in the operations of a regional health authority, but I sure saw it coming. I've been dealing with the stories. I'm hearing from the employees. This is not new. This isn't even just simply about the pandemic. We've just got a heightened focus on it because, you know, whether it be we tried to spare the healthcare system with different moves being made inside it and the numbers of nurses who are burnt and even the, those on the casual list that want nothing to do with a signing bonus or a retention bonus or mental health supports or child care offerings to become a full-time permanent nurse, it's been happening right in front of our very eyes. I'm not so sure how anyone didn't see it. Yeah, and I'm with you on that. And, uh, you know, like I said, maybe he didn't intend to blame the nurses in this case. You know, his choice of words certainly gave that. And uh, really baffled, really baffled when, when in his choice of words about a new dynamic and completely new. It, it's, it, you know, it, that little bit of hope that we're getting, uh, that we're starting to see some bits and pieces put together for health care, he sort of squashed that. <laughs> You know, with this, and this goes, as we know, this goes well beyond the nurses, our, our paramedics, our pharmacists, our allied health professionals. All of these uh, professionals are all looking for the same. They want a work-life balance, and, you know, I'm, I'm willing to sit down with the, the CEO and, and tell him what I've heard. Uh, because it, it appears he's not hearing the same story, but it's, it's and the minister needs to. Uh, have a conversation there and uh, on this and make sure they're all singing from the same hymn book because it doesn't appear from those comments. Those comments are very discouraging uh, when we're dealing with uh, health care in this province that are one of our main uh, health authorities out there uh, never saw this coming. It's really troubling. Yeah, I know. I mean, maybe I can give Mr. Baird the benefit of the doubt and say it's maybe more clumsy way to put it than you know, the complete unawareness of what's going on, because you know full well he's got to hear more about it than me and you. But it's just, it's extraordinary to me that, you know, the amount and the level of coverage of whether it be nursing shortages or paramedics fed up and wanting to leave and leaving, that we haven't uh, haven't understood fully the work-life balance issue that has been front and center here. I mean, if we're dangling money, that people don't want, then it's got to be more to the story. And I know, like, every time a healthcare professional leaves, we should have an exit interview to know why they left. But if so many of them, it comes down to operational issues and the stress at the workplace, to not address that is just leaving the elephant sitting quietly in the corner of the room, when, in fact, we can talk about money all we want, but if that's not going to cure the issues faced by the different pros, then we've got to include that in the conversation, right from the administration's levels of uh, held by Mr. Baird and others, or Miss Roby Show or whoever, because yeah. obviously it's part of it, big part yeah. of it. And, yeah, and it, it very much is, and I, I agree with everything you said there. Uh, and you, you did mention uh, Miss Roby Show, and, you know, to me... Uh, you should, with, with issues, especially when you hear this from the Eastern Health Authority, uh, maybe it's time first to also have a CEO for Central Health on the ground here in the province as well. Because when you're on the ground, you're, you're accessible and you're seeing, you're seeing firsthand uh, the issues that are happening here in this province and especially around health care. And, uh, you know, I know in this, this day and age where we've, uh, a lot of us through COVID, I guess one of the things that came out of it was the uh, ability to do stuff online. But, you know, I really think given the situation we are in, and, and I know other provinces globally, we need to have 
all boots on the ground here and be uh, accessible and upfront and talk to the people with lived experiences and come up with the solutions uh, from those people and address all of them. But when you come out with this, and you, you may be right, it may be clumsy wording on, on his part, but in a situation like this, we need to be extra due diligent in what, are, what, we're, well, how, what message we put out there, but more importantly, what are we doing to, to help it? Miss Robichaud might be effective uh, working from New Brunswick, I believe it is, but we're at a transition point here. Whether it even be the work for the going, the work that Mr. Diamond is leading with emerging all the four regional health authorities into one, the concept of leadership, it does bring a, a really different feature when the person is leading from right there in front of you, whether it be in the offices of central health or otherwise, as opposed to being, maybe being quite effective, because I don't hear the complaints coming from central health, other members of the leadership team, but there is a different feel when the leader is leading from right there where you are. There just simply is, and everybody knows it. No, you, you know, um, well, you know, give it a sports analogy. If your your coach is working from up up in the uh, uh, the booth and not on the bench, it, it, it there is a difference, right? There's no doubt about it when it comes to to leadership on the ground. But again, the leadership here too falls to falls to our government. You know, and falls to the ministers responsible. Uh, they need to be on top of this too, uh, with the different authorities, and make sure, as I said earlier, that we're singing from the same hymn book on this. The message we're getting is the message that we're hearing from from those with lived experiences. I've said it before. I'm, you know, what I sp- say and call in on, it's not me. I'm the conduit for those who call me and uh, have issues and concerns, and uh, you know, that's our job. To bring those forward is not not to criticize. It's uh, even though we may, but it's also to make sure their message is being heard. And I wanted to call in today just to say that that from my my chats with with these groups in the past, uh, respect or lack of respect has been a huge huge part of the problem and the comments that were made at this AGM, whether, as you said, uh, fumbling with the words or verbiage, uh, they certainly gave the impression that there was a, a uh, lack of respect for, for, for nurses in, in choosing the casual schedule. And and it just appeared that, uh, you know, as I said, they, they were, they had no understanding of this completely new phenomenon. So, mm-hmm. so that's insulting to them, and uh, I hope, I hope uh, the CEO, and I certainly I hope the, the minister, although I didn't hear your show earlier this morning, we were in meeting, but I believe he was on, but I hope he's yeah. offered an apology in that to, uh, to these uh, people in terms of the, uh, the comments that were made, because we'll be nowhere without all our, all our frontline health staff. Yeah, no, the minister wasn't on with me this morning. Just oh, sorry, for... I, I heard he was. Yeah. All good. We're out of time this morning, Paul. Appreciate your call. Again, appreciate your time again, Patty. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. you so much. Bye-bye. Paul Din is the uh, PC member for Tops of Paradise and the Shadow Minister for Health. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.